Hi everyone, welcome to this week's podcast. This is Dave Walsh, Drums in the Shed. Thanks for checking in and listening. I hope you're well. Um, very brief introduction this week because it's quite a long one. Um, me and my good friend, very old friend, uh, Elliot Henshaw, um, managed to get our stuff together for the second time. Um, we had one of these blunderous first attempts at making this podcast a couple of weeks ago. We um, we had this idea to have a bit of a drum get-together, drum summit thing uh, on Zoom with the kits, you know, I'd do a bit of playing and have a chat and stuff. And um, and then I said to him, "Oh, do you mind if I record it and uh, and put it out as a podcast? Do a bit of as like a bit of a, maybe a little bit more of an interview. I'll ask you know ask you some things, but still the same format and all that stuff. But blah blah blah, you know." And he said, "Yeah, it'd be great." So we um, we put together this highly complicated situation, and it was a bit, it was a bit farcical, really, because um, I my computer that has my like, for instance, has logic on that record my drums to is in a different room than where my drums are. So I had to log on to Zoom um, twice in order for him to be able to hear me on the drums <laughs> through the sound card and see me. And that was just ridiculous for a start. Uh, and getting that working took ages. And then we eventually worked that out. And then the second thing was I had this microphone plugged into my camera because my camera's got some XLRs. This is a very, very boring story, but it was a fiasco. And I ended up, the drums were really loud. Uh, sorry, I was really loud and the drums were really quiet. And the drums were all slightly out of time of, of them coming through this microphone. There was some weird latency thing. And then when he sent me his file, his voice was really, really quiet and his drums were really loud. And... Uh, yeah, and it was about four and a half hours long, and it was completely unusable. So we ended up redoing it, and uh, and so we had a couple of little glitches. We had to we had to log off uh, on the Zoom thing because uh, we we'd been on for a while, and we realised because we had three cameras on, we we're on the wrong account, which which was the the thing that didn't let us go beyond forty minutes. So we re so in the middle is just a bit of a weird bit. Um, where we're talking about uh, when he's playing with um, the late great Joe Longthorne, it, it's just as a bit of a strange. It's not an. It is an edit, but it's a bit weird the way the conversation um, kind of stops and starts. It, you probably wouldn't even notice if I hadn't drawn your attention to it. But uh, but that's that. And then there was a couple of. He had a couple of issues in the middle, just recording. Um, just had a couple of things, but that actually it all worked out fine in the end. So. Um, yeah, so this is quite a long uh, podcast. We ended up with about two hours, 35 worth of uh, interview, which is great. It's very funny, some of it. But he's uh, Elliot's, if you don't know Elliot, um, he's originally from Wilmslow uh, near Manchester. And we knew each other, uh, well, we've known each other a long, long time. And we used to hang out a lot when he lived up here. And then he moved to London. And um, it's been a very successful uh, session drummer across lots of different genres, styles, work with lots of uh, top musicians in London doing all kinds of different things. Uh, he's a great player, real uh, character, very funny. Um, and yeah, and I do, um, we, we, anyway, we got this chance to have a chat. And, uh, and so this second one was a little bit more of an interview, which was great. 
and it's come out really well and we got into talking about some really interesting things and we kind of see uh, a lot of things in music and the world and things quite similarly sort of with approach to music and, and the sort of music that we're into and things even though we play sort of very differently and we're into we're in sort of very different circles of playing um it's like I've said before, between a lot of players there are kind of common threads, I think, you know, and it's this idea of, of the foundations of what we do uh, take us in different directions. And obviously, you know, everyone sounds very different, even though we may have some of the same fundamental views. So, yeah, so sit back and hope you enjoy this. Yeah, it's quite a long one, but uh, and it kind of starts really at the beginning of... Um, of the when we were getting the uh, recording working, so yeah, it's quite casual, just gets straight into a, a really interesting conversation. So, yeah, nice one, enjoy, and thanks for listening. Nailed it. They will be, uh, they'll be sync. I'll sync them up, yeah, and all of our conversation will just will be perfectly in time. <laughs> Excellent, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that. Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing is that I always like I'm always when we're when I'm chatting to somebody as well, I'm always thinking about uh, occasionally about how I respond to something they say. Yeah, because yeah. then I can go when I go back to it later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember I spoke in that gap and it should be that out of time, you know. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and so it's just because uh, you do get like on a long audio file, you get a bit of audio drift. You can get a bit of audio drift when they're recorded on separate devices. So it can be a bit tricky. But sure. the one with uh, Seb and Rich was bang on. They were completely in time all the way through. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's anyway, that's all cool. Beautiful. So, um, so how's this week been? What have you been doing anyway? Because I've seen you got the old um, gigs I do. Uh, clips oh, yeah. back up again, which yeah, is great. Yeah. I love those clips. Well, I got, I, got, um, I had a kind of, uh, I did, I filmed a lot of the early parts of those things all in one kind of hit. I did it over two days, um, probably ah, just before, right. just before lockdown. I think I did a lot of those, and then I was just putting them up once a day, and then lockdown, yeah. lockdown happened, and I filmed a few more, and then mum got ill, and and then weirdly, yeah. at the initial early part of lockdown, a load of work came in, which was. Which was bizarre, you know. It was like everyone's sort of losing their work, and I, yeah, obviously yeah. all all live gigs went out the window. But but mm. suddenly, uh, quite a few mm. recording sessions came in, and and quite quite a lot of teaching. I had to learn how to quick, as I'm sure you, you you did at Leeds. I had to learn how to deliver content online, lessons online. So I got really busy yes. with with that kind of stuff, and um, mm. and then uh, the the backlog of that sort of calmed down a bit about two or three weeks ago so i started uh filming the the, the what, what's it called grooves from gigs what i do great grammar yeah that's there. right yeah yeah i thought you were going to rename it the grooves from gigs that what i'm not I doing did. at the moment yeah that don't exist anymore <laughs> oh well, well, not at the moment i yeah. just thought maybe maybe a little bit less dark than that well you know? uh, <laughs> uh, yeah well gigs that I've don't got, exist I've ever anymore yeah exactly well i've got a few um I've got a few more to do. I mean, I'm sort of working my way through Tony Christie grooves at the moment. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I started off with with the Leo Sayer grooves, and I did a few Rat Pack uh, grooves uh, with the show, the the Rat Pack definitive Rat Pack that I do. Um, oh, of course, yeah. And yeah. then, uh, and then, yeah, and then I'm, I'm working my way through the Tony Christie stuff now, and then I'm going to do some Spice Fusion stuff, which is, of course, the band yeah, that I run band, with, yeah. band that I run with Simon Niblock. Um, so I'm going to do yeah. a few grooves from that. 
And then I might, you know, once I run out of, you know, once I run out of grooves from gigs that I actually do, I might move on to grooves from gigs I wish I did. So, you know, a few James <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> That's few, a great one. Yeah, yeah. A few James Taylor grooves coming in there or, um, you know, Absolutely. That, that, that kind of thing. Although, um, uh, although it'll probably be renamed uh, grooves from gigs that I wish I did. But now I've played the grooves. I know why I don't do the gigs. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty well, long grooves. title for... <laughs> it's a really long one, yeah. Or grooves that I wish I did on the gigs that now don't exist for them either. And now I've played them, I realise they're quite yeah. hard. And I'm going to go away and practice this thing. And uh, and what I've realised is I've got some serious coordinational problems between my right hand and my right foot. <laughs> Just yeah. this massive exactly. long, this, yeah. yeah, this absolute meltdown on Instagram, and you don't, you end yeah. up not having any bandwidth <laughs> to put the uh, to put the clip on. Yeah, yeah, you got people ringing you up, going, "You okay, man? You okay? You okay?" <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I think I think the great. I mean, I was going to ask you about. Um, I was going to ask you about those clips, and obviously, the, I, I know more about the drummers behind the Leo Sayer stuff because we know who some of those characters are, don't we? But I don't know much sure. about the Tony Christie tracks, you know, about who recorded that stuff because, you know, Tony was working with some... I'm, a, I'm assuming there were top kind of British session musicians at the time. I don't know whether he was working with international people. I don't know a lot about that side of his... Uh, about his side of his career, but I was wondering no, whether... Well, it's... It, it, well, it, um... I, I have to admit, I don't know too much myself. However, I do know that Tony um, Tony never really recorded in any other country, as far as I'm aware. I, I think he no. may have recorded in America once, but it was a... Uh, it, uh, well, he certainly did in the last 10 years, but it was a self-funded kind of project. And he, yeah. he went yeah, over to yeah. Nashville and re did some recordings over there with with some some kind of you know, stock Nashville guys. I mean, that that, that seems to be the yeah. only scene in the world that has a recording scene now, you know. That's right, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But mm. uh, back in the day, um, uh, he was using, you know, the, the, the guys that were over here that doing those kind of recordings. I know that Clem Catini recorded on Amarillo. He, he played uh, on that. Oh, okay, right, um, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that's the only big name I know. You know, I'm sure um, from speaking to Tony, I know that he said he worked with Kenny Clare, and he worked with Ronnie Verrill. Um, now I know that those guys probably didn't probably didn't play live for him because I know that back in no. the seventies it was it was Dave Hassel was doing a lot of yeah lot of he that, was yeah a yeah. lot of that stuff. I don't know whether Dave Hassel uh, recorded record did any recordings. Tony t tends to be one of those artists that um, uses different guys, probably not by choice, but he uses different guys for recordings than he does live. It usually tends to be yeah. the the producer's choice um and he leaves it to them i mean as as it stands i've been doing tony's gig for 11 years now um yeah and, and yeah, i've yeah. only played probably on three or four tracks that have actually been released um and those are on like a like a best of compilation that got released in germany um but all the albums that have come out since yeah. i've been in the band have either had yeah. you know nashville guys on when he went over to nashville or um, now's the time which was his album from 2011 that was um i think it was 2011 might have been earlier actually 2010 um that was uh most of that was programmed stuff and he, he released an album sure. a couple of about a year ago called pop nonsense which again was programmed. yes i've heard some of that yes yeah that was uh, that was all programmed but it was the, yeah, one of the yeah. good things to come out of lockdown um is that tony wanted to do a, a little series called <laughs> quarantoni corner and that's that's genius. Yeah, it's genius. It's absolutely genius. <laughs> and um, 
it started off. It started off, and this was one of the first. This this was one of the first things I did in lockdown was that um, comic relief happened uh, late April, and uh, it yes, all had it to. Did, yeah, it, yeah. it all had to go to, uh, you know, socially distance and no audience, all that kind of stuff. And um, Peter Kay had an idea of re-releasing Amarillo again. Uh, and putting all the the funds to uh, the NHS, which is a great idea. Um, mm. And um, hang on, sorry, I'm just getting distracted there because I've just been told that I'm running out of time on Zoom because we've got because we've got three people logged on, two computers from you and one from me. We've got oh yeah, we've that got, old chestnut again. We've got ten, last we, time we've got ten minutes. So what we'll do is once I've told this nonsense story, um, yeah. we'll stop and we'll we'll get back on again and we'll do it on a diff my different account, which is a pro account. Last time I logged on when we were doing um, the last thing, you yeah, logged on through your BIM yeah. account. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll, and, we'll, we'll uh, do that again. But just for the purposes okay. of, uh, purposes of um, continuity, I'll continue telling this story and then we'll have a little Yeah, break. yeah, sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I was going to ask you about the German thing actually after this, but I'll get onto that when we re-log on. Because yeah. I know Tony's really popular in Germany. I thought he might have recorded in Germany, you see, but I don't know. Because you do a lot of gigs in Germany, don't you? You do a hell of a lot. <coughs> he's still, you know, even when his mm. UK career kind of started started to fade away in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, he was still doing massive arenas in Germany and, you know, yeah, big, yeah, big yeah. tours. Um, and he's yeah, still yeah. got a big, he's still got a pretty big scene out there. You know, we were over three or four times back end of last year. Um, yeah, I know, do, yeah. Doing, do, telling me, yeah. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, so the lockdown thing, so... Peter Kay decided he wanted to do Amarillo again for the nurses for the NHS. Sure. And um, this, and it coincided weirdly with it being Tony Christie's seventy seventh birthday, I believe, or seventy eighth. I'm not sure which, but he looks great for his age. And um, this does, morning, yeah, yeah. This morning got in touch and said they wanted to interview him. And would he want to do oh. a, a live lockdown version of Amarillo? Well, it's impossible to play live because of the latency and all that kind of stuff. So what we did was, yeah. We all recorded our parts separately at home. Um, yeah, and sent them in uh, to ITV to to edit. So you you know I had to learn fairly quickly how to sync up video and audio, which I'd, I'd done for the for my Instagram stuff anyway. Um, everyone yeah. else, everyone yeah, else, yeah. everyone else put their parts in, and and then that that kind of got aired on this morning uh, on Comic Relief Day or, or the day before, I think, and then. Mm. Um, and then t Tony sort of announced on on his interview on this morning that he wanted to do this thing, Quarantoni Corner, and uh, it, it seemed to get Genius. a good response from people. And um, so for a while, we did a, one track a week in, in exactly the same way. We'd all record our parts individually and then send, yeah. them, to, send them to Tony, who got them uh, video edited and put together. And he just releases it on his Facebook page every, or did for uh, every week. For about four or five weeks, we did it. And we tried to make it um, kind of to do with lockdown or to do with current affairs. So um, on VE day, we did um, We'll Meet Again. Uh, we did a version of that, which, of course, he's put uh, out again today because uh, I don't know if you've seen Vera Lynn passed away today. So, no, I've uh, not seen the news today. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, wow. 103, ah. 103 years old. Yeah, I was going to say. I didn't, mm. I mean, she must have been over 100. Yeah, but let me know. Um, right, okay. Yeah, so so that that went out. That was one of the ones we did. Then a week later, we did "You'll Never Walk Alone," which was for um, yeah, 
for for the for the chap. Oh, should know his name, but the guy that's been walk, uh, who's a hundred years old walking up and down his garden raising all that money. Incredible, um, Captain yeah, Tom. Captain, Captain Tom, Tom, isn't it? Tom. Yeah, sir. Is he sir now or sir, not? Sir, sir, sir Tom. Yeah, sir, sir Tom. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, what an amazing story that. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> So he released it. So we put out You'll Never Walk Alone for him, which went out then. And then Tony just started picking songs that he's not done before, which he'd really like to have a go at. But but again, had a kind of a mm. sentimental meaning for what's going on at the moment. So we'd done one um, which will be coming out on Father's Day be called I'll Be Seeing You, which is an old Frank Sinatra, Billy Holiday. Beautiful tune. Yeah, yeah, be- yeah. beautiful tune. Um, so we've, mm. done, we've done that. That comes out at the end of this week. Uh, one of the other ones we've done is... Oh, we did a great version of Spread a Little Happiness. Um, oh, yeah. I think I saw that, actually. That rings yeah. a bell. Yeah and, yeah. and again, you know, it's to do with lockdown. It's to do with trying to G, G people up. And a lot of the videos have been having quite a few thousand hits. You know, it's, they've, been, they've been really successful. Um, yeah, yeah. And we're, we're yeah. in the process of doing another one that will get released in, in a couple of weeks, hopefully featuring uh, Martin Taylor on guitar. Um, oh, brilliant! I've, ju- I've just a couple of days ago put the drums down for it, and I, I ended. Up, most of these have been arranged by Matt Steele, who's been arranging them and mixing them. But this one, oh, Matt, 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 uh, Matt, Matt didn't have a have a lot of time, so I had I, I had a, cha- uh, a chance to try and arrange it. And being a drummer, I'm not massively familiar with chord structures, and of course, Tony wanted to change the key from the original, so it took me about oh, perfect. Took me a million hours just to get the piano part down for Matt and, and Rich. Rich Hammond will put the bass down, um, but it's yeah, the, sure, yeah. It's yeah. that tune from um, that tune from uh, the uh, mo- oh, gosh, mine's gone blank. The cartoon with the with the cowboy in it, Woody. What's what's that? Oh, you Toy Story. Toy Toy Story. Yeah, the Randy Newman. Oh track right. From that. Oh yeah, Randy New. Oh yeah, yeah, mega. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So uh, so that that that'll be coming out in a couple of weeks, hopefully featuring Martin Taylor. So it's been a good it's been a good thing. But what Tony and and Sean Tony's son has said is that um, they want to do when we when we are all allowed out again and can get together. He wants to release an album of all these kind of Corin Tony hits, so to speak. So hopefully we'll all be involved on a on a Tony Christie album for the first time, which will be which will be lovely because he's got an incredible touring band behind him. I mean, a lot of the guys you know, Matt Steele on keys, Dave sure, Day, yeah. Dave Day on yeah, guitar, Dave back Day's the, mega, yeah. Um, Richard Hammond, of course, <coughs> and then Brian Corbett Genius. and uh, John Batram in in the horns. You know, which it's a yeah. wonderful wonderful band. So you know, it it, it, sh- it we should be recorded because it, I think it will. We know what makes ta- Tony sound good. You know, as as well as his legendary voice itself you know to have to have us behind him i think is the complete package really yeah absolutely i mean the thing with tony that people forget is like his voice is just mega you know people just don't they they take it for granted i think you know it's like just one just because it's that sort of maybe like a typecasting of the scene or something i don't know but it's like it just seems like a real like a real national treasure that's missed a bit, you know, missed out on a bit. Even though obviously Amarillo's like a Peter K made it famous again, didn't he? You know, in a few years sure. ago, and that changed Tony's career a bit, and you got a lot busier. That was around the time when I think did you join that band and you were sort of touring with him? Yeah, just uh, so I think Amarillo was two thousand and I want to say two thousand and six, but I think it was a bit later than that. Might be might be six or seven, and I joined. Tony. Yeah, it's, a, it's around. That I joined time. Tony yeah, in two thousand and nine. Yeah. Um, so That's one of right. my, yeah, my first yeah. gig, my first gig with Tony, 
um, my first gig with Tony was main stage at Glastonbury, you know, which was after, I think it was after status quo and before Tom Jones. So, you know, that's no, right. No, no pressure there, you know. Yeah, yeah. I remember you doing that gig. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was yeah. brilliant. No. It was a brilliant, slightly different band then, slightly different uh, personnel, but uh, but one or two, one or two guys uh, that you'd know again. Who who was doing it then? I think it was. Um, oh. It was pretty rich, wasn't it? Rich wasn't was oh, was Rich pre- wasn't it doing was it then, rich. was he? Yeah, yeah. Because um, Andy Williams was doing keys. He was MDing it. That's um, right. Yeah, that was. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was all. It was all those. And Johnny Johnny Hayes was on guitar, which was lovely. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a funny thing with um with obviously the the late great Joe Longthorne. You know, I was lucky enough to do a couple of. I think I did a couple of depths for you with Joe. That's um, right. And Rich was in that band, and you started doing that gig, didn't you? And with Stretch MD and etc. I know there's yeah. various different and Cy Goulding does it on bass, doesn't he? As well, I did it. Sorry, I, I yeah, keep yeah. referring to it as an existing thing, but he's sadly yeah, he passed I mean, away. I, passed away last year. Yeah, yeah, last year. Yeah, um, um, yeah. So you were saying about Joe Longthorn? Yeah. So um, I mean, there's a guy, Joe. Um, over the years, had the had had the cream of British session guys playing for him. I mean, when I got the gig, I got the gig. Um, it was Stretch. Um, who offered right. me the uh, offered me the gig? I think it was around about 2013, and yep. in that and in that band then it was Rich Hammond again yep. on bass. It was John Morton on keys too. Stretch was MDing it. Yep. Stephen Price to those who don't know Stretch. Um, That's right. The tallest was, man in um, music. Tallest man in music. Six foot nine, isn't he? Yeah, 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 six nine, six ten or something. Just uh, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, top guy. Haven't seen him for a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was uh, Lewis on guitar. Lewis, um, there you go. <laughs> Forgetting names again. I tell you what, I'm getting old. That's right. No, it's, 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 it's that thing of being put on the spot, and it's like, oh god, I've got to remember all that shit. You know, all these different people. <coughs> Lewis, Lewis Osborne, Lewis Osborne on guitar. Amazing. Right, okay. Because uh, when I did it, I did it a couple of times, and it wasn't. It was a debt. Every time I did that gig, there was a, a debt, mainly a debt bass player, who was Simon Goulding, who's mega and he's done that gig loads of times anyway. Si- but well, Simon does. Simon does Spice Fusion with, uh, in, with yeah, him, of course, he's yeah, just he's an like, unbelievable player. Yeah. He's unbelievable. It's like incredible. This guy from like Preston or wherever yeah. he's from yeah. is like this unbelievable he's like musician. The best, kept, like, best kept secret in the world. You know, I remember hearing a story that Nathan East heard a recording with him on once and said, keep that guy out of L.A. Yeah, I could well imagine that. This guy yeah, is like no exaggerating, isn't it? He's got that sort of jam, John Patitucci thing yeah. about the way he plays. Yeah. Uh, but he's really into he's into Cuban music, isn't he? His, his real passion is well. His, his wife is Cuban. And his he's, wife's he's, Cuban. Yeah. yeah, he spent a lot of time over there, and uh, and he's yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got all that stuff down. It's 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 incredible. So he was doing Joe when you. I, I did a few Joe gigs with Simon Depping for Richard, you know. And yeah, doing, you know. yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, the, the main and then the on guitar was Alan Wormhold. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, he t- he took over. Lewis got busy. Lewis Osborne on guitar got busy. Yeah. Lewis does a lot of West End shows and and that kind of thing. And I think he ended up doing School of Rock in the West End. Lewis. Okay. Right. Which ran, right. Which ran for about four or five years. You so he couldn't on commit that, didn't to. You? 
Uh, I didn't do that one actually. No, I didn't go in oh, on that one. Yeah, right. No, it was, um, right, right. I, around that around that similar time I was doing Bat Out of Hell, so I wasn't really on the depth scene. Oh, sorry, that's why I'm getting mixed up. You were doing that, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Right, right, um, right, right. But um, but then uh, Alan Wormold took over on guitar from Lewis, and Alan's fabulous as well. Another ridiculous Mega, player, yeah. great great singer as well. Did great BVs on that gig for Joe. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But but you look back at the history of Joe's gig, and you know Joe, you forget how massive Joe was back in the sort of eighties. You know, he had a Saturday night TV show. He was playing all over the place. You know, gigs coming out of his ears, and he was mm. using all the top the top session guys. You know, at the time, you know, I, everyone I speak to in the business down here says, "Oh yeah, I did Joe's gig a few years ago." You know, yeah. It, you know, it was all the Dave Arch did it, and um, Harold Fisher's done it. Ralph Salmons has done it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know all those all those big heavyweight guys, Trevor Barry on bass. So a lot of the you know the kind of guys that do strictly strictly come dancing now. The, the house band for that. Yeah. Um, they all they've, uh, they've all come through the ranks of doing Joe's gig, um, and we did some great gigs with Joe. I mean, we we were lucky to be uh, in the band when he when he turned sixty years old, and we did a big big concert mm. with with strings and that at the Palladium, and, and yeah. that got that got turned into a, a DVD. Which is out at the moment. I remember, yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. <coughs> not that we ever got paid, <coughs> um, but uh, well. yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, but uh, but but it was it's great okay. to sort of have uh, you know have some kind of record of you doing gigs like that. I've done, you know, did a couple of live albums with him, and a couple of two or three DVDs have been released. Um, one which uh, is a live at the Hippodrome Casino in London, which was my very very first gig for Joe. And uh, I was sight reading the whole pad, so again, no pressure there. Yeah, uh, let's just talk about let's just talk about that pad because I remember. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's like for a depth. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, I remember Stretch saying to me, "It's like the fucking Dead Sea Scrolls," you know, some yeah. of those parts, and he was right. I just like you've got you've got forty years of. Uh, abbreviations written on some of those parts haven't you of people's addition to addition to addition to addition to addition exactly exactly you it's, know it's correction upon correction upon writing penciled rubbing out tip yeah. Yeah, yeah it's all it's all on there and 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 so when when i came in that's what i was faced with um mm, yeah me too but but <laughs> but, uh, but and, and there was no point me as chairholder trying to do anything else to it to help anyone because I'd just no. be adding to the carnage. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. so a lot of the time, um, it, it was a case of you know, book guys who were going to debt for you who know how to kind of play by instinct as well as you know. And and to be to be fair, Joe would change the way he sung those tunes every night anyway. So sometimes he'd skip a yep. verse, you know. And you'd so it was a combination of keep one eye on the part, one eye on stretch, and one eye on Joe. Uh, yeah, so you, but there was... you basically, I only, I only had to book Cyclops, not Cyclops. Who, who were the three-eyed ones? <laughs> yeah, Cyclops. that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but the thing as well to add into that was always the thing of Joe would change the set. Oh yeah, as well. well there wouldn't, so there he, wouldn't, there would, yeah, you'd have a vague set list, but then he wouldn't do anything yeah. like it. He'd, no, and, no. And a lot of the time, he he would just start, he would just start singing, like like yeah. ju- ju- he'd be talking, and you'd be re- you'd be thinking right, he's going to do a bit of bit of patter here, and then suddenly yeah. he'd just launch into the long and winding road, and you had to kind of join in. 
and find out, uh, stretch enough to find out what key was in really quickly, you know, and away you go, and then you'd say, right, yeah. well, this is this is what we're doing now. And that I loved that because it's old school. You know, it's those kind of entertainers are not just they're just not around now. Nobody, you know, everything in modern music. You know, I don't want to sound like an old fart, but but I am. Um, it, not everything, as old as me, my friend. Uh, Every <laughs> true. Every every everything in modern music now I find is micromanaged to within an inch of his life Absolutely of his life. Because right. people are people are too yeah. afraid to to just let to, well almost to trust the guys that are doing it, you know. And fair enough, I think you know, you, you and I are lucky to have caught the very back end of a, of a of the glory days of the music industry where you know i still remember doing hmm. only a handful of gigs where it was working men's clubs you know where you were turning yeah. up and there was an organist and a, and a drummer and the set was written out on the back of a fag packet and you just busked your way through it there isn't that kind of training for young players now so i, I guess it's it has no. to be micromanaged to a certain degree but fortunately i'm very lucky that all the artists that i've played for over the last few years joe longthorne tony christie uh, Leo Sayer, you know, they're all they're all from that era where they, they trusted the guys that were playing for them, and and they knew that we had their back, whatever whatever happened. So if Joe wants to just crack on singing and not announce anything, we'd be there with him. You know, if if Tony Christie wants to change the set and call out a song he's not done for twenty years, he knows that we'll have that in our repertoire because we've done our homework and and we know what we yeah. know what to do, and we've all got great ears for busking as well because a lot of us you know i know certainly yourself myself we, we our livelihood for such a long time was just busking jazz standards and opening up your ears and reacting to what's going on around you that that, that is a kind of a i think not a dying art form but it's an art form you cannot preserve because there isn't the opportunity for for students now to go out there and learn that trade without i don't know it's 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 funny isn't it it's yeah, I mean, you're talking about the work, the working man's club thing. I mean, I, I remember I might have even mentioned this in an, in an early episode, but just that vibe of that's where I learned that singers sing bars of seven, you know, when they don't mean to, <laughs> oh, yeah. or bars of three when they don't yeah. mean to. And that's no, it's no disrespect to the singer. It's just a way in which people learn music. And I think the way that me and you learn music is... We learn it from a form-based thing, don't we? You know, and we, I mean, you, we're pretty nerdy about the instrument and stuff, from you know, technique and other players and sound and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, there's a kind of music theory side to the way in which, also, you know, we learn to read and all those things. You're like, I mean, I always talk with my students. You're one of the few people that I actually talk about as having a proper reading skill. You know, um, it's like you and Simon Williscroft were always people that I would say, these people can read literally uh, fly shit, you know, on, on the page. Like they can read the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know. And, and yeah, some of it is it's obviously about ears and it's about musicality and about experience and doing your homework, which is something you always, like you're always great on that thing of, of doing your research, you know. Yeah. But yeah. It's, that, it's that other thing as well of, of, of really like nailing that processing side of assimilating what's on a score, you know. And, yeah, I think, I think you know, uh, we both know about the Vinny, the history of Vinny, you know. Yeah. And all that side of Vinny's kind of, he was the reader, wasn't he? He was known as... That was his thing, as well yeah. as the ridiculousness of everything else that he could do. He was always sure. like an amazing way of reading, assimilating, and playing like sounding like himself, you know, which yeah. is one yeah. of the hard things, you know. But 
And I think you're right. It's hard to learn those skills. And, and I learned that. I used to play with an organist like you did in the working man's club. There was no set list. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I would have been playing for like four weeks, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and these singers were like singing bars of just missing beats out. And it's just because they learn off. They just learn the music in a different way. And you realize that, okay, that's just equally as valid. And that's got its own yeah. thing. It's just I'm going to need to be in my musical career, my life as a musician, I'm going to need to have my ears open all the time because you don't know what's going to happen. And and the Joe Longthorne, when I did, I only did Joe a couple of times and and it was definitely the music that I wasn't playing very much at that time and it's not not part of my kind of normal repertoire. And I, I love that thing like you did about it, but I, was, I definitely found the gigs... Uh, kind of stressful because i i've just one of these people like a bit ocd i like things to be kind of organized and i like a set list to 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 play out as it's supposed to you know in 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 some respects and, sure. and like stretch should just say oh joe's not feeling that great tonight he's probably only gonna do 50 minutes you know uh and there's the the last gig i did yeah, with yeah, him yeah. i think it was the th i did about three gigs with him and the, the third one i did was uh, uh he he was kind of talking before because I was chatting to him before the gig and he was kind of basically saying he was going to do like no more than an hour. Yeah. And then he did over two hours. You yeah, know? yeah. Because well, <laughs> he got I, out that there and he a lot. Was... But yeah, I, always yeah. I, always found that I always found the gigs where um, the gigs where you had a five-hour journey home afterwards. Those are the ones you do <laughs> yeah. three hours on stage and the ones where you were <laughs> close by, you know. He'd, he'd yeah. <laughs> and it didn't matter for Joe, did it? Because Joe was just living in living in his motorhome. It didn't, didn't, just didn't matter to him, did it? Yeah. He, was living, he was just moving didn't. around where the gig was, wasn't he? So that's, that's right, yeah. But it's interesting, going back to the, um, the reading thing you were talking about yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and citing Vinny uh, and Steve Gadders, Steve Gadders Steve as well to that point. Um, sure, I think yeah, yeah. I, I, I was lucky enough. To, I was lucky enough to be on a, a Zoom uh, masterclass with Vinny uh, at the weekend. Um, yeah. There's a gr great friend of mine, Russ Gleason, runs a, a thing called Drum Hangs, and it's uh, it's mm. him and Neil Wilkinson that do it, and they get different guests on, and hundred hundred people log on to Zoom, pay you know ten fifteen quid, and they get different guests to not not really so much as a clinic to play, but just to chat like we're doing now, you know, and you yeah. can ask you can ask them questions, and they've had. They had Vinny on last week. They had Lee Scalar, the great bass player, the week before. We've got Mike Clark coming on this Saturday and uh, Ed Green the, the week after. Who, for those who don't know who Ed Green is, he um, awesome. he played on all the Barry White songs uh, amongst many, many other sessions back in the day. Really legendary yeah, yeah. session player. But, um, but I asked Vinny about his reading and said, you know, because it's often detailed with Vinny that it, I've, I've read in interviews that he's given where he always says drumming came pretty naturally for him, it, it, you know, from a, an early age. You know, he I think he started playing quite late, maybe 14. Um, but by the time he was 18, you know, he's, he's uh, 19, he's auditioning for Zappa. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. But he always yeah. said in interviews that, you know, I, I was lucky that I could hear something and I, and I knew how to play it pretty, pretty quickly, sure. which is an incredible, incredible um gift to be given but i asked him about his reading and said did you have the same gift with that or did you have to work really hard at the reading you know because you know he was going into frank zappa's audition sight reading the black page or or, or whatever you know which I, I still can't read you know it's you know yeah uh, and um and he said well he said he did have a little bit of that you know it did make sense to him you know in the same way that there are great mathematicians out there that can just look at formula and and it just yeah. makes sense it makes sense but he said the, the the important thing about it was he 
he absolutely loved it. He loved the the he loved in the same way that people would read novels or read uh, read books. He would just go out and read music and and just play along to it and and try to understand you know um, subdivisions within subdivisions and tuplets within tuplets and all that kind of thing. Um, but mm. uh, but you've got to remember that I think the great re- you know we talk about great readers out there and there are plenty you know in, in, certainly in London all the guys that do the West End shows you have to be a you have to be a pretty proficient reader to do that kind of stuff. Sure. But I always think there are I, I, and I've taught a lot of them um, who people who come to me for reading lesson come to me for reading lessons and they'll say well I want to learn how to read bec- but I can read but I just want to learn how to make it sound natural. And this is the great sure. art form. This is something that one of my heroes over here, Mike Smith, who I talk about a lot in interviews that I've done before. I always give him a big name check because he's uh, he's up there for me with people like Ralph Salmons, Ian Thomas, Neil Wilkinson. He's from that generation. You know, that guy's got, you know, got the touch of Pete Erskine and the swing of Jeff Hamilton. Um, you know, and he, he's just this, you know, really humble chap that lives in Peterborough that, that has played on probably more things than I'll ever dream of playing on but yeah he's mega isn't he absolutely yeah. mega yeah, yeah yeah he, yeah. he I, went, I i never went to him for lessons but when i was at college i i started at salford university and i couldn't read a note i i played by ear and uh and then when i didn't get into the college big band because i couldn't sight read um mm. i was furious so I, I just made a point of every monday when i didn't have any lectures driving to the BBC uh, Pebble Mill, which isn't there anymore, and watching the BBC Big Band record every Monday yeah, um, from 10 in the morning till 5 in the evening. And I'd sit behind Mike Smith and watch him sight-read these ridiculous charts that he made sound so natural. And I couldn't believe yeah. he hadn't rehearsed them. You know, they, you know, I remember one time John Taylor coming in as being a, a guest and bringing these odd time things that were just preposterous. I think Stan Saltzman was on the gig as well. And yeah, Mike, yeah, Mike yeah. suddenly just sounded like the greatest ECM dr- jazz drummer ever, you know, and he was reading all, flowing all over these time signature things. And mm. I think the important thing to remember is, with, re- with reading, is, yes, you, you, could, you could sit down and get, get it together um, so that you can read anything that's put in front of you, but can you bring it to life? Can you then, you know, because a lot of it is about interpretation. It would be like saying, well, I can read every... Um, English English language book that's out there, I understand it all, but to Mm. actually stand up in front of a room and deliver that story to a room full of people, if if you were just reading it with all the correct grammar and no inflections, then you'd just sound like a robot reading it. And and I think it's the same. I've I've taught drummers who've come to me that can that can read, as you say, fly shit, fly shit. But you put them in a band situation where they're sight reading, and they just sound like it's all been programmed into a into a soulless machine and it's just regurgitating correct notation, but everything is played as it appears on the page. And the great yeah. players like Vinny, like Gad, like Mike Smith, uh, and you know, Ralph Salmons, those guys over here and and, and whatnot, is they And Ian, yeah, they, Ian they, Thomas they, and they, yeah, yeah, Ian Thomas, yeah, they they read it, they're playing exactly what's on the part, but then adding adding this this magic to it that makes it sound like, God, even if you had hours to rehearse that that's the correct way to play it it sounds like the perfect take in a recording studio after after 50 other takes it's like it's a real magic and 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 i think that yeah. come that comes you know I, i'm not saying i have any anything like that kind of magic in my playing but i think what 
what I have is the, the fact that I had, from the age of 13 until I was about 18 or 19, just playing by ear and playing in bands, school bands. Mm. And uh, I played for Stockport Youth Jazz Orchestra and I played, you know, in pub bands and working men's clubs and all these kind of things where I just had to open up my ears and react and play the right thing based on what I was hearing the music do. And if you've got, I think if you've got a good ear for music, you'll do that as a drummer. And then if you then apply that to reading as well, you've still got mm. that, you've still got that massive part of you that knows, even though the music says this, what it actually means is this. And that's when people go, my God, that guy can read really well. Because, you know, yeah. ghost notes aren't very, are very rarely written on parts. Um, mm, inflections on true. the hi-hat, you know, changes in intensity, changes in orchestration. Those kind of things are very rarely written on a part unless it's something that needs to be written, played so specific, like a, you know, like a film score thing or a West End show kind of thing. You know, so that that is the thing that I think a lot of readers forget is that it's not, you're not just regurgitating what's on the page to what you actually play because you can do that by just feeding that that into logic and pressing play and, and the, the drum sounds on logic will, will do that it won't sound like a human being reacting to the guys around no you know, no uh, it, yeah yeah it's a really interesting thing as well with the with that reading side of it because like when you like you're talk what you're talking about there i'm sort of thinking like whether people really need to i mean we're probably you know, speaking mainly to drummers who are listening to this, if anybody's listening to this at all, it's probably just me and you listening to this after we've recorded oh, I this. It. I love it. I listen to it on 24-hour loop around the, around the clock. You know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, And then you mantra it, you then, like, say it all back. Uh, yeah, back in, re in reverse. <laughs> and yeah, if, if you, I say it back in reverse, and it actually it, it actually becomes a, a, a podcast by Vinnie Caliuto. It's weird. That's right. I'm very, very, very... But no, the, the thing about, like, people trying to understand the reading thing is, is, is if you think about a really simple analogy, like, uh, like Keith Jarrett believes that Bach is perfect music. So okay. if, you, if you play Bach off the page with no expression, it yeah. is perfect. Now, I agree with that sentiment. Okay, it's a really simple thing. Whether you agree with it or not, it doesn't matter, but it's just a, it's just a very simple analogy. Yeah. Okay, so then you get into the classical music thing and you get into all that thing of everything's written down. It's all there on the page, the information, and a lot of information's there on the page with all classical music that's written. And then you get into that thing of interpretation, don't you? Okay, so there's that yeah. kind of freedom, there's that freedom of expression element by something that's solid. You know, it's, it's written and it is what it is. The truth is there, but the interpretation is within the individual performing it. What we're doing is another step from that is you've got this thing of the, the, the truth is in the part, but the information that there is is really, most of it is within our experience, isn't it? Absolutely, of, and, and of, our instinct. Of life, and our instinct, exactly, yeah. yeah. So you've got the thing of instinct is omnipresent, whether you're in touch with your instinct or not is, you know, kind of dependent on the situation, isn't it, you know? Yeah. But uh, I always think, like, readers like yourself and great, like Ian and people have got this kind of really great balance of having the instinctive thing at their kind of beck and call, you know? Because it's like, if you get nervous, the instinct thing can become too kind of like close to the surface yeah so yeah. you're then not relying on the kind of logical side of your experience and then if you're if you if you're like completely devoid of the instinct thing you're completely switched off in a situation you're just like you know 
just like staring at a part and playing exactly what's written there. Everyone's going, hello, around you. And the ears are yeah. completely shut, you know. So I'm always talking with students about like what you're talking about there, that thing of like, yeah, yeah, the information's on the page, but there's an interpretive thing. You need the experience. You need to be in touch with your instincts. And it needs to sound like you. You know, so yeah. everybody that comes to all these gigs we're talking about, you know, you look, Joe Longthorne, Tony Christie, Leo Sayer, for instance, all those. I don't know whether the Leo gig has a pad, actually. I'm assuming it no, does. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. No. Yeah, yeah, because it's because it's a slightly different thing, that, isn't it? I, yeah. I, I see that as a because um, it's. Uh, well, the Tony Christie thing doesn't have a pad either, actually. I mean, I think maybe it did back in the day when. I did one dep for you and it was Tony's cousin or nephew, sorry, uh, wedding. Okay. And it was no pads. No, no, no. no it, it, was a, it was a nightmare gig. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was fine, but it was just that thing of there's no, you know. I, I knew what tunes we were doing. Obviously, we did Amarillo and sure. we did Amarillo at a wedding. And I was playing in a band at the time with Jeremy Sassoon, Paul Bentley and Rich that was wow. doing Amarillo in its set. Uh, but then I, I did a gig that next weekend with Tony Christie at a wedding Brilliant. of his family. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I can tick that off in my in my life experience box, you know, as one yeah. of those bizarre turn of events. Of it's like <laughs> the Michael McDonald thing, isn't it? Michael McDonald was singing Doobie Brothers tunes in clubs as a as an artist, and then the next weekend he was like, and then I was in a rehearsal room with the Doobie Brothers because I got the call. Yeah, and I was suddenly I was doing those tunes with the Doobie Brothers. Yeah, uh, and it was like the most bizarre. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's mental. It's it's absolutely <laughs> mental. Uh, but anyway, sorry. The, so the Leo. So those. But though the, the thing about um, gigs with pads, you know, is that idea of coming in yeah. and playing like you would with Leo or Tony on 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 Joe's gig. You know, you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls in yeah. front of you. There's about there's like ninety different drummers have played that gig and put their own fucking marks all over these pad these parts. Everyone's slightly different interpretation. The fading of time of ink fading over time. Parts rubbing together, being taken in and out of folders, three pads all piled on top of each other, fucking music everywhere, you know. Yeah. And in the middle of that is you or the individual trying to make sense of it all and make it sound like good music and like you're playing that well, music. Well, yeah, then you then you draw, I think, from like like you say, your instincts, your experience of playing, mm. but also your experience of listening. Like if you Sure. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I think I think you know there there were times in uh, when I started with Joe Longthorne that uh, probably even in the first gig where uh, you know the the, the info you'd, you just didn't know what was coming up. So you would turn yeah. over and you'd see this this the, the, it looked like a spider had got drunk and walked in Ingo it, all literally. over the park. <laughs> and, and, and so you go okay, well you don't panic in that situation. You wait for the counting and then you use yeah. use you might if you're lucky you might it might have a say a, an eight bar piano intro, intro from stretch and you go ah it's that vibe yeah, and i remember yeah. i remember thinking right it's that vibe um mm -hmm. i'm going to put the sticks down and i'm going to play brushes on this and i'm going to give it like a steve gad james taylor kind of thing because it's a song like that and those kind of things i wouldn't know if i hadn't listened to steve gad play with james taylor or i hadn't listened yeah, to the music yeah. you know sometimes i might start and eight bars in, I think, you know what, this isn't working. And you've got to have that trust in yourself and trust in the guys around you to know that you're going to make that decision to switch a exactly. vibe in the first eight bars. And yeah, and, yeah. and you're not going to get, you're not going to get, you know, hauled across the co the coals for it. But I think, no, no, I think yeah. that's why, um, you know, from a drummer's perspective, we, we are quite unique in the instrument that we play when it comes to reading, because as you say, you know, you can, you talked about classical music and orchestras playing all the infos on the part, you know, I think, 
where their interpretation gets changed maybe is when a different conductor is, is running yeah, the yeah. orchestra. Sure, yeah. Um, however, you know, you look at contemporary music like, you know, and modern music like we play, um, trumpet players in a, in a uh, you know, the, the trumpets, if, if Joe had a horn section, for example, which he did on some gigs where, where there was a bigger, bigger audience, um, the sax player has to play the, the same notes the same way every night, as does the trumpet player, as does the trombone player. They don't, they can interpret it a little bit, but you, you know, yeah. we, as drummers, our interpretation is what makes us employable. Um, and that is why I think you had so many great artists and have so many great artists or producers um, who want to work with a specific drummer rather than saying, just get me a drummer that can read like Sinatra toured with Irv Cutler for 25 years because Absolutely. he trusted, he trusted whatever Sammy Nestico wrote or whatever Billy May wrote, mm -hmm. Irv was going to interpret it right for Frank Sinatra's gig. Um, you know, and yeah, when I yeah. first started doing Shirley Bassey's gig, depping for Mike Smith, it, it was Shirley would travel all over the world. And the only people she would take with her, are her musical director and her drummer because yeah, she yeah. needed somebody she need, and, and Shirley Bassey is, is a similar gig to the Joe Longthorne gig in that you're playing songs with an orchestra behind. And, and, and a lot of Shirley Bassey's, you know, that, that's another thing where, you, you know, a, a few weeks earlier I played Goldfinger at a wedding and then suddenly I was in Monte Carlo playing it with Shirley Bassey in a, yeah, a 50-piece yeah. orchestra. But, but the music for Goldfinger, wow. the, the part was, again, it was like sellotape together, ink over ink over pencil over tip X, and you're like, well, it's just Goldfinger, isn't it? You know, it, it just play Goldfinger. And, and yeah. you know what to do because of the experience, you know, of, of playing the wedding a week before or uh, listening to that music on vinyl because it was in your parents' record collection when you were young. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did it with a, um, I did it with a film thing with Manchester Camerata, you know, a film like a James Bond with Nickel. Um, what was his name? Uh, conductor. We did the Casino Royale... Uh, Oh yeah, Nicholas yeah, Nicholas yeah. Dodd. He did the Nick, Casino Royale Nick kind Dodd. of orchestrations and stuff. Yeah, yeah. He was conducting, and he again he had his own interpretation of, you know, uh, of that music. Uh, on the yeah. gig, he was just wanting me to play louder and louder. It was amazing, you know. Wow. Yeah, he was Happy just days. like he was just going more, more. And, you know, <laughs> I was like, okay, I've just yeah, this is like amazing. <laughs> It's like it always reminds me of Pat Ellingworth. Um, I told me this hilarious story. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but it's just that with those gigs that you do, he used to do a lot of these uh, like Jewish bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs, very, very long gigs with long sets and very yeah. short breaks, you know, and they were physically, you know, you're playing music that's like... And, yeah, I've done a load of those. You know, yeah, yeah. I know you have. Yeah, yeah, it's like... Yeah. Horrendous. Yeah, and and this these guys that he's playing with, their their vibe was um, he did so he did the first set, and after the first set, the guys were like, "Hey, yeah, great man, yeah, great, great, great. You, you can play more fills." And he was what? like, "What? Yeah, exactly." He was like, "More fills? Yeah, yeah, just play more fills." So the second set, he was like doing like you know umcha umcha at like two hundred and thirty BPM disco at like you know one hundred and eighty BPM. You know, and more fills, you know. And then in the next break, he was like, Yeah, yeah. And the guy was like, Great, man, you sound great. You can play even more, you know. Wow. And it was that vibe of like, Oh my God. And he said it was the physically, at that time, was the most demanding gig I think he'd ever done in his life, you know. Yeah. But just yeah. because of that thing of actually, it was the opposite of how he was trained, you know. We, we all had that thing of discipline, 
you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. don't play, don't overplay, and, and make sure you, you know the fills uh, are all you know placed. It's, and it's weird know. when obviously one of my first passions, like yourself, uh, you know, growing up was big band music, you know, Buddy Rich and all that, yeah. and that was all I wanted to do when I was a when I was a kid is playing a professional big band. And um, when I got the, the my first big professional gig, as you probably know, is the was the Andy Pryor gig. Andy Pryor, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and I sort of joined that band when I was 21 um, and there was some incredible players in there Malcolm Melling on lead trumpet um, Matt Miles was on bass I seem to recall Les Chisnell was on piano yeah, that's right um, yeah. it was it was a heavy band um, and um, and I approached it as a 21 year old who'd been listening to Buddy Rich since he was 13 like flying around the kit you know for every every figure that I wanted to set up and uh, every I opportunity Andy, every opportunity and I remember Andy <laughs> yeah, Andy yeah. Pryor pulling me after about 3 gigs Andy got me in his dressing room and he said um he says you're a great player Elliot I love listening to you play from a drummer's perspective he says but if you carry on playing like that I'm going to have to let you go I was like, what, what, what do you mean? He said, well, I, you know, where's the space for the lyric? <laughs> where's the space for the vocal? He said, it's, you know, right. and quite rightly, he said, right. it's, it's my name on the poster, not yours. You know? yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, that's a very, very good point. Um, and, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, And it was actually him, you know, I, I'd, at 21, I, I was, I'd never really had lessons. I'd, I'd, I'd had a few lessons before I got to college. I was at college when I got the Andy Pryor gig and I was I just started having lessons with Steve Gilbert, who was just the best teacher anyone could could wish for. But up to that point I'd had nobody guiding me in any kind of a direction. And um yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh and so I hadn't really got anyone saying, right, yeah, Buddy Rich is great, yeah, Dave Weckel's great, yeah, Gary Novak's great, yeah, Scad's great, Vinny's great. And those were the guys I was listening to, uh, Louis Belson. But nobody was saying, well, you know, because I was I was obsessed with guys who, who had chops. That was my, you know, I just loved it. You know, being a, being young and being, you know, wanting to sound like those guys. Mm. But Andy Price said to me, "Go and listen to Irv Cutler," and I was like, "Okay, who's that?" And he said, "It's mm. Frank Sinatra's drummer." Um, yeah. and go and listen yeah. to how he plays behind Frank Sinatra. And yeah. I went away, and I, I can't say at twenty one that I was like, "Oh, this is amazing," you know, because it didn't excite me in the way that the chops guys did, but that was the best lesson I, I ever had, you know, because it, it changed completely the way I played for, for Andy and certainly the way I played um, behind any singer, whatever genre, well, not just big band, not just small group jazz, but, you know, playing behind Joe, playing behind Leo, play, you know, that most of my life has been playing behind singers. And yeah, I yeah, struggle true, now. Yeah. I struggle now when people say, oh, you can be a bit busier here because it doesn't, even if I'm playing instrumental jazz, I'm like, well, the sax player was doing something really beautiful then. I don't want to fill behind that. I want to listen to that. I just want to play time. And, you know, I've, I've kind of, I know it sounds old and cliched, but, you know, the less is more thing is definitely where I go to. Let's be clear. I, I still love guys with chops and I, I wish I had some chops. You know, I've got a few things that I can do, but, but a yeah, lot of the time I just want to play really, really nice time and, and, and mm. be that support. And, and, you know, I often say to, to young players, you know, at BIM where I teach uh, and, and people that come and see me, you know, I'm like, be on the lookout for who is going to be the next groove player. The guy that with no chops that still becomes a drum superstar because it's it's rare. You know, you look yeah, at is. the it drum is. superstars now are the guys who've got, you know, and they're amazing and are brilliant at what they do. But they've always got sort of nine pedals on the left hand side, eight on the right. They can play seven with one hand, nine against the other. They can fly around the <coughs> kit with both their feet and their hands. 
and it's become yeah. a bit like an ex- a bit like an extreme sport. And there's a place for it, you know. And and you know, people will they'll have loads of YouTube hits, and it's you know, it's impressive. Mm. But think about who, how inspirational and how up there in the drum god stratosphere people like Jeff Pacaro are, and Carlos Vega, and Steve Jordan, and J.R. Robinson, still yeah. to this day. And those mm. guys are not known for their chops. They're just known for for sounding so good on records, even, you know, yes, playing behind singers, but even on fusion records and on jazz records. They, they, but where, where we live in a sensationalized life, don't we? Where, you know, yeah, vi- Neil, bit, yeah. Neil Wilkinson and Vinny were talking mm. about this on the Zoom call that I had with them, uh, the masterclass that Vinny did at the weekend and was saying, if, if uh, Vinny said, if I was to just go online and put myself playing, I don't know, two minutes of one and three, two and four, it wouldn't have any hits, but if I went online and played thirteen over nine and did a load of polyrhythmic stuff, I'd get loads of hits. And and that's people are missing the point to some degree, you know. Um, that yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's 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 great to it's great to have that facility to to be able to play more when somebody says play more. But hmm. for me, um, it you know if it gets in the way of something else, somebody something that somebody else is playing musically then I don't want to do it. And sometimes I, f- I have to fight really hard. Uh, you know, and, and, and I think I've got out of practice now. You know, where I, I, I get a bit more nervous when somebody says, oh, put, stick a big fill leading into that hit. I'm like, oh, no, what am I going to play? You know, and then I get bored with hearing myself play the same thing. I think you did a, a little thing on one of your podcasts in February where you talked about, you know, getting sick of hearing yourself and getting sick of hearing yourself play the same thing the same way every time and I sometimes have, a, have to have a little word with myself when I get like that because hmm. I pay good money to go and hear Gad play you know and he delivers every night he plays you know he quite openly says I've, I've made a great career playing a few things really well playing for a long three, time. Three or four things, yeah, yeah. absolutely. He's made and a million people, dollars out of it, probably. You know. Yeah, yeah. And if and if he doesn't mm. do those those things on a gig, people go away unhappy. Yeah, I'm sat here saying I'm sick of hearing myself play the same stuff. It's like, well, you know, yeah, what, yeah. What, do we, what do we want? You know. Well, yeah. I mean, my 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 thing in that I think as well is I, I'm sick of hearing myself playing the same thing not as well as I'd like to be able to play it <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah, that's slightly true. you know and th- and there's also the thing of um, like when we did our when we tried we attempted this two weeks ago and we did our kind of farce um, <laughs> we were talking about we were talking about Steve Gilbert actually and I always remember um, years ago hearing Steve Gilbert doing this gig and he, and he was playing um, this sort of really, really simple version of a song go, you know. Yeah, I've heard him do that. It's fucking mega. Yeah, and I remember I, 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 when I was watching him, it was, it was a loose change thing, which has started up again, hasn't it, actually, the band? Because uh, Simon's moved back to Stoke. He's moved to Stoke, hasn't he? And yeah, that's loose, right. That, that, yeah, and, and, and Mel's put the band back together, so to speak, hasn't he? Paul yeah, Kilby yeah. and all that lot. Yeah, which is great. I used to go and watch, like I know you did, you used to do that gig, and I did a couple of depths on that. And I used to go and watch Steve, because I, I, like you, I, I just got a tremendous amount of respect for Steve. He's a super nice guy, amazing. He's one of those proper session drummers, isn't he, you know? and a real oh, musician, uh, uh, you know. Just, again, Steve's one of those drummers where you could turn the sound down and still get pleasure from watching him play, the relaxed motion. Absolutely. F- his flow around the instrument. 
I mean, yeah, it, again, yeah. that it's a combination of seeing Steve play fusion and listening yeah. to Irv Cutler play jazz that changed my vibe on how to play the drums, really, in those years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and it, so I remember in playing this groove, and then I spent some time, like, learning to sort of play that songo thing, you know, trying to actually get kind of more into it and learn a lot more about it. And... And the, the 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 problem for me has always been like I sort of get I get kind of bored or 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 I I do the Eric Harlan thing where Eric Harlan says about that thing of don't practice things that you can do because you because you basically you 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 nail them and hammer them into the ground you know and you bury them yeah. and so you end up losing the love for them you know because you just overplay them and uh, and I always think about James Taylor and Carolina on my mind you know because he that's his favorite song isn't it and he plays it on every gig. Yeah, and I, and me, I know me and you've seen him, you know, between us probably twenty times on sure. and, and and all sorts of different gigs and situations, and and what always staggers me about about JJT is that when you hear him sing that song, and if you heard him next week singing that song, it just sounds like he sung it for the first time, you know, and and the thing I've always tried to get back to in with things like that of getting bored with the sound of yourself is is trying to get back to that place with it, you know. Of I, think like... it's, I think it's something that comedians must go through as well. If you, t if you see, you know, these comedians that do massive tours. Like yeah, yeah. P Peter Kay, for example, you know, the videos that he does live at the MEN or whatever come at the end of a, like, a 100-day tour, and he's told the jokes a yeah. 100 times. And he still looks like he's loving it and laughing at them. And, you know, you've just got to go and deliver... And, and it have that same freshness. I mean, that's an art form in itself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think that I think the key is in that because for, like the problem I have is that is is I listen to the way I play, and I, and there's something about it I don't like. So it may be something I've played a thousand times, but you're, the you're, you're in you're in the minority there. You understand? Well, it's there. still it's about it's it's about your own feeling, the the, the emotion attached to how you deliver something in it. Sure, and, uh, sure. And 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 the thing about the Peter K thing. Which is a which is actually a great analogy is you know that that joke in that scenario and the way he delivers it is is not only is it top quality and it's in in its realization and in its inception it's it, the way it, where it comes from but because of that the belief in saying it time and time again because yeah. it's going to be funny time and time again that's why he can tell it a thousand times, you know. And what, I, sure. what I'd love to get more into my playing, he's been able to, you know. It's really believed that every time I play that, that I, I believe that its inception and where it comes from is, is of that purity, you know, and I'm not kind of, oh, I'm playing that old thing again. Oh, I don't really like the yeah. sound of it. It's already, it's a negative vibe, you know, I'm already like, well, if you don't love what you, if you don't love the sound of something you do, how is it ever going to, you know, how is it ever going to work? No, that, and, you that's know, really and true. This, um, well, I had this thing with Stuart, because when we, I interviewed Stuart, we were talking about his music, and I, and I did this album with him, and it was a really challenging thing for me. And I think even in the interview, we were talking about the drum parts, because he was asking me to do things with the drum parts that were really, really contradictory to how I would play uh, a drum part, you know. So yeah, he was yeah, saying things like he wanted... Um, 
right? Which is just yes. one, two, four, one, two, three, four on the hats, you know. Obviously, it's obvious. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it sounds yeah, yeah. You know, fine. Now, I would instinctively play this. I put eights yeah. on the hats. Eight, eights on the hat, yes. Yeah. Not com Yeah, it's not complicated, is it? But he was like, no, I don't want eights on the hats. I just want quarter notes on the hats. You know. Sure. And the, and there's two two bass drums on, two two bass drums off, and there's backbeat on and the backbeat off. It's like an electronic music, it's like a programmed beat, you know, but he wanted it yeah. to be played by a human being. Yeah. And we used to do gigs where like that would be the first track and it was all to click. And you know this thing, we all know this thing of sometimes when you've got an adrenaline thing going on, your perception of time is different. Of so course, a click yeah. that is on one day when you're feeling calm and fine is not on another day, isn't it? You know, or the groove yeah. in comparison is like, you know, <laughs> it's uh, like yeah. a complete... Yeah, yeah. And, and we used to have this thing on gigs where I would start, that would be the first tune on the set every gig. And we'd have, I'd have the head, these headphones on and the, the click would start, it'd be two bars. And then I'd come in on my own with that groove. And very yeah. occasionally he used to just look round at me because he knew that I wasn't comfortable and he could just hear something. And it's not like you'd listen back to the recording and I would sound like I was going, oh, you know, I just like some random nonsense or whatever. I was playing yeah. it fine, but there was a subtlety, a real subtlety, because he knew my playing so much, he could yeah. hear that there was something that I wasn't quite happy about in my playing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so this thing about not like I've been sort of bored of yourself, it actually really comes from that thing of actually when I, when I play with people that really know me, they know that I'm not happy. Hammond's the same. He can hear when I'm not happy. At yeah. the instrument, because he, he's so used to how I play, and he'd be the same for you. He's played, like you and him have played probably twice as much as me and him have played. You know, like over the years, you've done so many gigs together, and I think we sure. get into this thing with musicians that we play with. You can just like immediately hear where their emotional state is. You know, with something. Very um, much so. Very much so. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. So that's where that it, it you were talking about that thing of it's, it's, loving what it's you like do. You say it's yeah, so you say you've nailed it. It's about conviction. It's about it's about conviction. It's exactly what it is. Belief and conviction. It's a, it, yeah, belief, yeah, yeah. belief and conviction. So you believe, like yeah. the the, the com comedy analogy. You know, you you know that you've got a belief in a knowledge that the joke is funny if it's delivered yeah. that way, the same way every night, and then then comes the conviction because you you, you know it, you're just doing your thing. And uh, and it was a great thing highlighted. Um, we got uh, Steve Jordan to come in and do a masterclass at BIM a couple of years ago. And oh, he wow. got and he got up. Um, there were two kits up there, and it was it was for the kids, you know. But obviously, I you know I'm a tutor there. I have to clearly I have to look after him and stand right near the front and watch his every move because it's my job. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, video it all and, and video it all and put it all on YouTube all. and charge yeah. people to buy it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and uh, he <laughs> and he he did a great thing um, in that he was he would get students to volunteer and come up and play the kit that was alongside his. so And he would sit there and he would critique them, you know, not nastily, just, I mean, you know, a free drum lesson off Steve Jordan, yes, please, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and it happened with every single kid he got up. He, got, he must have got about, I don't know, 10 or 11 kids to come up. And um, mm. what he would do, they'd sit, they'd sit down, he'd say, right, play me a beat. And of course, you've got guys 
who were, you know, anything from 18 years old right up to 23, 24. And some of them yeah. are really great. Some of them are still learning the instrument. You know, there's different vibes. But obviously, they're all going to be nervous getting up and playing in front of Steve Jordan. And a, yes. and a room fu- and a room full of their peers and tutors and everything, but that's right. But they all yeah, yeah, yeah. they all wanted they all want to have something to say. So what you actually got happening was, I'll just take one example. And this is this I'm I'm generalizing a little bit, but but for the most part this happens. So you'd say right, play me a beat. So you'd get yeah. you get a kid going okay. He'd let him get about eight <laughs> bars into that. And, and, and then he'd go, okay, stop, stop. Right. And he'd say, right, play me a beat. And so yeah. they'd go, oh, right, okay. Um. And he'd, right, stop, 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 stop play me a beat <laughs> and, and, and what he was getting yeah. at was and he, he explained himself he said right you, he said you play great your technique's great go and sit down another one up and they'd do this and they'd all be like oh right well, maybe he wants um... you know, nope right stop go sit down somebody else <laughs> play me a bit and they'd all come up they'd all try something different and, he, and then he said look he said the thing about it is he says a beat has to have consistency. It has to have conviction. And it has to have belief. So you've got to believe that the beat you're playing is the best beat you've ever played and is correct yeah. for the song. You've got to have yeah, conviction sure. to deliver that beat. And then it's mm. got to be consistent. But that that doesn't just mean consistency of time. Yes, it's got no. to have consistency of time. It's got to have consistency of groove. It's got to have consistency of dynamics. It's got to have consistency of uh, orchestration. Yeah, and sound the, and, and sound. The whole, yeah, and and yeah. he said, he said, ninety percent of my career has been sitting in a room playing a beat for three or four minutes and not deviating on it because they want to, they want to capture mm. that beat. Maybe if they, if they want to copy and paste bits of it and put it in somewhere else, it's got to be the same forty-eight mm. bars later as it is ninety bars later as it is, so that they can do that. So every snare drum rim shot has got to be the same volume. Every, you know, all these kind yeah. of things. And he says a lot of people forget to practice those kind of things. And what and then what he proceeded to do, and I can't do this, but I'm gonna just give you a little demo of what he did. He just sat down at the kit. And now you've got to remember there was about two hundred people in this room, and it was in one of the the, the the sort of studio rooms, you know. So we're all crammed in there. Half of us stood up, half of us sat down. And he sat down at the kit, and I, I, he just sort of went. <laughs> on it went for, for like five minutes like it didn't stop it didn't change it didn't deviate and by the end of it it was like he had the whole room hypnotized and when he finished the place erupted and and yeah, i think yeah. he, he wouldn't have got a bigger round of applause if he'd have flown around the kit with one hand and twirled his sticks and you know played in seven over nine over five it was just masterful 
And it was kind of yeah. like, well, there, there you go. Everything you need is right there because that's what producers want. That's what artists want. And then I think if you can start with that foundation, I know you do, you've done quite a few podcasts about foundation. So important. Yeah, foundation. It's, foundation yeah, yeah. is so important. And that kind of stuff, we've got the foundation of technique. We've got rudiments. We've got you know all that kind of foundation. Absolutely. But then the foundation of just... Uh, I've been doing some marking for BIM this afternoon before we we, we got talking. And um, yeah. I'm watching videos of these guys play their techniques assessments. And um, yeah. one of the exercises, they have to do um, a groove which is written out, which is like a paradiddle groove, so, sort of one of those, um, yeah. that kind of thing. So that's their, that's their kind of groove. And then they've got to do 16 bars. Every fourth bar has to be a fill-in, but every fill has to be different and show off doubles or a flam or something like that. And um, so often they've paid more attention to the fill and how they're going to play this amazing sextuplet thing around the drums. And the groove itself is just not grooving or it's not consistent. And, and I think the foundation there, and I've written this in some of their comments and the critique is like, work on getting that groove so good that if your fill isn't good, it will be so highlighted against that groove because it will disrupt the groove. The, the fills have got to be a continuation of the of the of the groove they're not two different things they're all no, part yeah, they're all yeah. part of the same thing and yeah, and i think yeah. if you work on that foundation so that your pocket and your groove whatever groove you choose is so solid then you won't want to play a fill every fourth bar you won't want to play it you, you'll be like no I'm, I'm sitting on this groove so beautifully and this is where i got to not just with um with sort of straight eighth stuff and you know modern music but also if i if i got playing big band and I just started doing the uh, what I call the Irv Cutler beat which is the yeah that's right yeah yeah you know when it comes to the big hit on beat 2 that the band does I didn't want to go no, I didn't want to no. do that I just wanted to go Because that that works. That doesn't get in the yeah. way of anything, and it just and it didn't disrupt the flow of the groove. And mm, you know, I mm, think mm. Th there is. Let's be clear. There is. There's a. There's an argument for both, and I don't think there's a right or wrong about it. I think it's it's kind of one way works for some people, one way works for another. And I I have like yourself. I've had mm. encountered moments where I've done the Earth Cutler approach, and somebody's gone, you know what? Give us a big fill into that setup, will you? You know, it's like. You know what am I going to yeah. do here? You know, and then and then and then it's like it's been so long since I've approached it like that that you're absolutely right. That conviction goes, that belief in, and that's where it's like, well, I'm just going to play the same old boring fill that I always play into a hit on too. And then that's where it that you know that's when the players turn around and go, yeah, you sounded good, but you sounded like you didn't want to do that or you didn't believe in it. And and that's so true of life, isn't it? If you do anything that yeah. you don't really believe in, people will know. People who know you better than anyone else will know that you don't believe in what you're saying or what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that foundations thing because it's something that sort of fascinated me uh, since I've been teaching, similar to you, at a kind of what I would consider as a more developed level. You know, you're teaching people who've like made a sort of decision already that actually this is what they want to do with their lives. You know, you're yeah. not teaching 
people at school who are doing this and other things and are still working out whether they're going to be, you know, a rugby star, a fireman or a drummer. You know what I mean? You, you, they're, sure, sure. They, they've gone, I'm not going to be a rugby star. I definitely don't want to be a fireman. I want to be a drummer. And so it's it's that idea of, of trying to instill uh, a quality within those important elements of however they choose to study, you know. So if they, they're getting into playing certain styles of music, I just think there's like a prerequisite to being able to to deliver that music, you know. I, I think, because I, I I feel like I got got to learn this because of being doing it all the wrong way around, you know. Because, um, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the journey of things is just is what it is. You know, you, you, as you're going along through life, you either really, like, really... Uh, like absorbing all the different um, influences or you just kind of get a little bit more kind of compartmentalized and say, I'm just going to stick to do this thing or do that thing. And I just remember when I was getting into playing swing, you know, there was just this thing of of watching Buddy Rich and watching the, the left hand. You know, just that thing of like the left hand was always really, <laughs> yeah. you know, you've got... And when, even whether, he, whether he's feathering or, you know, whether he's feathering or he's not feathering, doesn't matter. This left hand was this gymnastics thing going on, all uh, subdividing. And it's, uh, it's, I've never seen it. I've never seen anyone else play like that with the left hand. No, and there's even like, you know, like, like Birdland, you know, one of those tunes uh, when he's playing all those fills. You've got all that dee do that. You know, most most drummers would just be like, dare do that, dare do that, you know, whatever. And he's like, dare yeah. do that. Yeah, it's just like he's like trying to cram all this information in the gaps, you know. And so, yeah, like, when yeah. I was like, and and I was comparing this, um, I think to Keith Moon a little bit in an earlier a podcast I did a few weeks ago. He's got like the drummers of influence, you know. And sure. Keith Moon played very like that because it was this like I just I sort of see two, the drummers when I was kind of younger as in two categories generically and this is not true really anymore but um, was like was was John Bonham was what I would say is the vertical player you know it, I mean amazing soloist and epic and all that stuff but the fundamental yeah. thing is that sort of meat and potatoes you know the real yeah, like yeah, the bo- yeah, yeah. The, you know. You know, that was, that thing is just massive and, and solid all the way through the music. Yeah. Whereas Keith, for me, was the was the drummer who was always listening to Daltrey and it, the opportunity between all the vocal lines, he would theatrically take. I mean, you'd see him on gigs just doing silly things, moving. He was <laughs> like pretending to play and not actually playing anything when he wasn't playing. He's just moving around the kit, you know, doing, putting his fingers on top of the sticks. And it's all theatrical, but there's also musical intent behind that, you know. Yeah. And like, yeah. if you look at Bonham, he's not, there's not that thing at all. And, this, no, no. and it's not saying it's not characterful and it's not amazing. It's just a different. And I was always, and then when I got into, so I moved away from, you know, the who thing and got into Buddy. And then it's like the Buddhist thing was his left hand. It's like I was obsessed with this kind of traditional grip, this left hand that was playing yeah. every single gap, you know. And then went on, moved away to Jack Jeanette 
from that, which is just this completely different way of playing. And what I would say is, you know, more maybe organic and uh, and looser, definitely looser. And and so I was kind of really into that for a long time. And then and then and yeah, I was also yeah. kind of into Peter Erskine, which I, I still see as this kind of almost like it's so perfect, you know. It's like be- beautiful sound, but this kind of perfection thing, you know, of the way in which he executes phrases and stuff. There's just a real fatness about it, the kind of the fat triplet thing. And then, you know, hearing this thing that he was influenced by Elvin and then listening to Elvin and hearing it much closer to Jack and his looseness and and just like, how, how, how the hell am I supposed to make any sense of any of this shit, you know? Because <laughs> and the thing that I got wrong was what I should have been doing was what you're describing of just... Spending like three or four or five years actually just getting that together. You know? Yeah, well, they. Th- th- this is the thing. I think even even if I'd have been taught from an early age, you know, the foundation, this is... Go and do that for five years. As, as a 13-year-old, I'd been saying, go and, go and kiss my ass. You know, I'm not doing that. I want to play like Buddy. I want to I go, you know... <laughs> I want to do all that stuff, please. And, 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 yeah, and, yeah. and off, I'd have, off I'd have gone. And I think, I think if you even when you look back at, you know, you re- listen to interviews with you know your Weckles and your Vinnies and all those guys, they probably look back at their their time when they were younger and go, God, if only I'd have known about time then, you know, and stop pissing around with all these licks and stuff. Um, it's never too late to go back to that. You know, I was lucky that I had. Oh, for sure. I, no, I, no, I, no. I, I was lucky that. You know, I didn't really pay any attention to time. I didn't even know. I, didn't, I never did any practice with a metronome. I didn't, do, you know, I played along to records, which is just as good, I think. You know, that was all I was Me doing. Me too, yeah. Um, no, likewise. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. But I, d- I certainly didn't play to a click, or to a metronome. I, d- I wasn't practicing technique, rudiments. I, d- I didn't know what, know what any of that was. You know, I picked them up as I went along because I saw Buddy Rich doing that with his right hand. So I need to do that with my right hand. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but, but I think. I didn't pay any attention to time or feel, you know, because they're for me two two completely different things. You can have great time and a terrible feel. Um, Oh, for sure, uh, yeah. No, and vice versa. Great feel with yeah, loose time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, Yeah, But but um, but it was only when when once I started, you know, once it started becoming like, oh, I'm getting paid to do this here, and I'm getting paid to make this music sound good. And when I was listening to record, because I used to record. Used to take a little crappy cassette recorder with me to all my gigs and put it down by the drums and press play and record yeah. and go and on the way home I'd listen to it in the car you know and I'd be like why does this sound so rubbish you know and and a lot of the time it might be timing issues but then a lot of the time it might have been uh, feel issues because my feel just wasn't right you know get, getting you know getting the balance between the instruments right I mean if I'm if I'm if I've got a heavy right hand because I'm right-handed and I'm on the hi hat yeah. and I'm going. No wonder the field. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. You know, so so. You're ne- yeah, you're never going to do that, are you? Though. That's no, I know, like, but brilliant. But but. but <laughs> 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 it's amazing, so, isn't it? So it's amazing. Yeah, um, yeah, it's great to and to be able to do that like off the bat though. Actually, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard. really hard to do that. 
Yeah, it's hard. It's dynamic, not, it's not dynamic. Um, I, what's it? What do I call it? Dynamic uh, independence. You know, where you, you, you're not changing what the, the the motion. You're changing the the volume. You know, it's like when you hear rock players playing jazz. You know, and it's like. I mean, they're all triplets. Yeah, yeah. They're all triplets. They're all the right subdivision. Yeah, they're yeah. all in time. But if you just go. <laughs> suddenly it swings. And this is like when I talk about. I do, I do, when I do kind of lectures and master classes and stuff like that, I always talk about, you know, making stuff swing, making stuff groove. Um, what, yeah. what is it that is the deciding factor? And for me, it's, it's the volume, it's the dynamics, it's the touch. Um, which makes yeah, it's the balance. It's the balance of sound, isn't yeah. it? And it's what what's what's the kind of core? What's the central thing that people are going to listen to? Which is yeah, and then the nuance, which is actually even the feathering is the nuance. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. And what's where's the skip beat? Is the skip beat loud? Is it quiet? Yeah. What, yeah, but yeah. what's the thing that's at the center of this? What's the thing that's centering your sound? And then is the ability then to, to be dynamic with any of those other elements, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's really, it's, it's really fascinating uh, thing. But I didn't start really getting into any of that kind of nuanced stuff until a lot later in my career, you know, when, when it was like, right, there has to be a reason why these guys sound so much better than me and I'm playing the same thing as them. Uh, and it, and, and mm. it, that it became well. First of all, time came into it. I discovered that you had to have good time. You know wh why it took me so long as a drummer. You know, that's our main job is to have good time. But um, but then it then it was like, well, my time is good, yeah. but but my feel isn't my swing feel or my groove or whatever. And then it's like, right, I need to I need to work on this. And and I think it, it once you actually start delving into that or going down that rabbit hole, as you, you say in a lot of your podcasts, which I think is a great analogy. Once you go down that rabbit hole yeah. of like, right, I need to mm. make myself sound good with the most simple things, um, yeah, th then, yeah, then, yeah. then it starts becoming a joy because once you start believing that you've got good time and good feel, well, it becomes a joy to, to bring that to a record. And, a, you know, I kind of, whereas when I was 21, I used to hate listening back to rec albums that I'd played on or recordings that I'd done. Whereas now I don't, I still don't really like it, but I I, I look forward to hearing how I sound, you know, because I, I for me, yeah, 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 yeah. For, for me, it's like I know I played in time with the click on that recording. I know that it felt good mm. when I was recording it, so I'm looking forward to. I always sort of go, God, I sound like a professional on that recording. It's brilliant because I still, you know, I'm still waiting for the day that I'm going to get found out that I'm just pissing about here, you know, and it's like, ah, oh, I actually can't play. Yeah. You, do you know what I mean? You, I'm waiting for the gig yeah, where I turn yeah. up and, and it all oh, goes yeah. to shit. It's like, oh, I've been pulling the wool over your eyes for 25 years now and you found me out at last. Right, let's call it a day. I'll go and, I'll go and be just a shelf stacker in Tesco's, you know. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think there's, that's, I feel exactly the same way. Uh, I've talked to many people who, as well who teach on a quite a high level and they're all said the same, just waiting to be found out, you know. Yeah. And and actually, you know, the thing that we all forget is that we just we bring our experience, don't we? Yeah. We bring we bring what the experience we've had in life. We bring that to a situation and we share it. And whether or not you know it resonates with people is you know, and I think generally it does because you know you we're normally in the situation 
that we're in for for a good reason. I was saying that like this thing I was talking about uh, performance anxiety and people getting their heads about you know, playing with people and they get into self-doubt on the bandstand and all that stuff. And they forget that they're there because someone's asked them to be there, you know. Yeah, <laughs> someone, yeah, of course. Someone rang them up and said, do you want to do a gig? Yeah, yeah, oh, great, brilliant, I'll see you on the gig. Then they get there and they're all filled with like, oh my God, am I going to sound any good? Am I, is my time going to be, do I know this style of music? Do these people like me? Why is they looking at me in a weird way? The audience, no, do they accept me on this gig? And it's like, you just forgot that somebody said, do you want to do a gig? And you said, yeah. And you would just like turn up and do the gig, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I find that. But, you know, we all, to different degrees, live in that kind of, uh, that headspace from time to time, you know, which I, I, th find, I, th I just have, find that. Oh, I, yeah. I, it's, it, it's a real, um, I don't know if, if it's the same for you, but I, I certainly remember a period where I didn't trust myself on gigs. Like, I, I had that insecurity. And then I turned... I don't know, I, I can't pinpoint it to a, a certain gig or a certain, uh, pinpoint it to a year, but I just remember, like, no, I'm meant to be here now. You know, you, you've booked me because you want this and I can give you this. And there was a, not an arrogance, yeah, but, yeah. but but an absolute, you know what, I, I, I do still have bad gigs, uh, you know, and I, I'm always looking to improve and I'm always wanting to get better and I'm always wanting to sound a bit more like my heroes. But... But I know sure. why I'm there. I, 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 you know, I know my value. I know what I'm bringing to the mm. to the gig, and 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 I think that is a is a a big part in in uh, unleashing that you know that co conviction and uh, and that that belief that what you're doing is right. And 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 then then comes the the joy of, of of going. You know, I just love this. I just love doing this because we all like to do stuff we we're good at. You know, that it is frustrating. Some people thrive off the practice of learning something new. I've never been that guy. You know, I've never, even when it's just me in a practice room, nobody's listening and I'm trying something completely brand new and I'm clamming all over the place. I, I hate it. It's like, oh, I sound terrible. Mm. And, then it, and then it starts, I guess it's the internal dialogue kicks in and then goes, yeah, you're not very good at this, are you? You're not very good. You want to go. You're, you're rubbish at yeah, Latin as well, yeah. and your left foot's really yeah. weak, and your left hand's sounding terrible at the moment. And then it's like the demons, yeah, yeah. and I have to walk away from it. You know, which is a horrible situation to be, especially when you're trying to learn something new. But once you come out the other side and fight off that, and you, and then you, like I get it every time I learn a new West End show to go and dep on. I get, I get, you know, mm. I try and play, I try and play it through the first time, and I sound like a beginner. And, you, and I go away going, well, I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to get it. And you tell, I'm telling myself, I'm never going to get it. Never going to get it. You're not, you're not good enough for this show. There are better players out there. And then you, mm. you do this four hours a day or six hours a day to get it, to get it right, depending on how much time you've got to get it together. And when you've done that first dep, and you've, you've terrified yourself to within an inch of your life, and you come out the pit sweating, and everyone comes up to you and goes, that was absolutely amazing. It's like it's the best feeling in the world because it's like. Uh, oh yeah, I can do this. I am good. Oh, all right then, that's fine. You know, it's a, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a funny yeah. old experience. We we are up. You know, the biggest enemy for creativity is that is that is our is our own sort of doubt and our own. Because uh, if you didn't care about making a mistake, you'd, you'd imagine how good we'd all be. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and it's the thing. Yeah, and people forget that you know we are um, most musicians that I know that are pl that are players. Um, not not musicians that are say artists who are, are doing a thing, you know. They are they're they're yeah. they're they their sensibilities and their and their kind of the things that bruise them are very different, you know. But the thing like with us is that we're sensitive people because we're 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 generally good listeners. We give a shit about what we do. What we do is very personal. It's individual. 
people are relying on us to bring that to the bandstand every time they ask us to work with them. Most of the people that me and you play with, we play with a lot, you know. Um, My days of when I used to just say yes to everybody, you know, I used to get rung up and just be gigging every day and do all sorts of different gigs. They've been over for a long time for lots of different reasons. And, 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 and it was it was great for a while while it lasted, but it wasn't really very good for me for my playing and me psychologically. I'm I'm much happier now to play less, and play consistently with people that I you know work with, uh, uh, all the time because it yeah. builds up those kind of relationships, you know. Um, but it's that idea of you have to bring all those things, th- and there's only us, and so it's it's obvious psychologically. That the the opposite side of that you have to battle with when you're practicing is that you're going to be you're going to be listening to yourself, learning something new. It's going to sound, I mean, like yeah, I, I've like I think last we did that podcast attempt last time. I was talking about that that you know that swing thing I've been practicing and how yeah, painful yeah. that was. You know, because when I first started to do it, I literally couldn't play it. You know, and so it's like I can't play the drums. Yeah, that's what it is. If you can't that's play it. something, yeah. you can't. You know, I want to play the instrument. I can't play the instrument. I can't play this. I've been playing this instrument for th- over thirty years, and yet playing this new thing, and people forget. I think that that we do that all the time. You know, and so it's. But I've definitely got in the last four or five years, I've got a lot better at practicing that in that way. Uh, because I think I've just got more, I think I've got a little bit more patient with myself. Because I like Dave Hassel gave me stuff when I was 17 uh, that was brilliant. And I never practiced any of it. One, because it wasn't that interesting at that age, exactly as you yeah. described before, you know. Secondly, it was hard. And it was yeah, coordinationally yeah, yeah. challenging, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it. You know, why? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why would I want to practice just that, you know, literally yeah, just yeah. ting, 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 and, and uh, on or off beat crotchet triplets on the bass drum, you know. Yeah, Why yeah. would I want to practice that when I was 17 or whatever, when I was playing along to Keith Jarrett and people were saying, you sound great, man, yeah. So why would I want to go away and sit in a room and practice those things? I didn't get that together properly till 10 years ago really uh, i mean i still don't think i've got it together properly now you know so I'll be, I'll, me and you'll have this conversation in 10 years time the same podcast it'll be like a weird <laughs> kind of mirror <laughs> image of the like i'll be slightly older How you, doing? <laughs> you know whatever and we'll be having this i'll be saying i've just got this <laughs> i just I'm, i think it's slightly better than it was you know whatever and, yeah. and so, and that's the hilarity of it. Is it goes on and on, and it's and that's fine. Actually, it's all cool sure, because it's yeah. just, it's all a, yeah. it's all a system of refinement, isn't it? At the end of the day, you know, and what you're into. But it's remembering that thing as we were talking about originally. If you've got to love the things that you play, you know, and 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 do the thing, do the gad thing, you know. You know, how many times has, how many records has he played the Mozambique thing on, you know, oh, in all man, different orchestrations, yeah. double sticks with Paul Simon on Michael McDonald yeah. records. You know, that same groove, it appears time and time again. And it's like, like when he's in the studio cutting that groove, he believes 100% in that, in that moment. Because somebody said, I want you to be here. I want to pay you this money to cut that on this album. I want yeah. you to play that with that feel, you know. And it's remembering, I think, that we... That's what we have that we have that choice in ourselves to feel like that about what we do, you know, which is sure. uh, a beautiful thing, as they say, you know. 
<laughs> but I did want to talk is. about. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about your uh, like the transition career for you. Uh, and I was kind of wanted. To, I wanted to ask you about this about an hour and a half ago, but we've obviously just tangent <laughs> into, as usual, which is all fine. Um, and anybody, anybody that listens to this will be tangent tastic as well. I would imagine, of course, um, of course, and just go on the roller coaster of um, the roller coaster of mayhem. Um, but you're like we. So we we were well. We're still very good friends, but we obviously haven't seen as much of each other in the last few years because of geography and and all those different things. Because we live in different parts of the country, but we used to see a lot of each other when you lived up here. Uh, yeah. In the frozen north, and then you emigrated to the um, to the, the you know the Mediterranean South, and of became course. a landowner to Ealing. And originally, you and Simon, um, and you had this because you both wanted to live in London, didn't you? You had a real thing about you wanted to. Um, yeah, it was always move it was, your... well. Well, let's be clear. I, I I knew I had to live in London to do what I wanted to do. That, That's that what was, I was trying that, to say. That was, yeah, 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 yeah. That was the thing. I didn't want to live in. Lo- I mean, I I used to love coming to London when I when I when I lived up north, to to, to, to Ronnie Scott's to see gigs, to hang out with players. You know, just I just loved the excitement of it. And um, mm. and it, it, you know, a lot. Looking back, I'm trying to think about my psychology when I was. When I was living up north, you know, I, I still just wanted to play big band. I wanted my dream job was the BBC big band, but of course that didn't didn't exist by the time I became a pro, um, because it was a full time job when Mike Smith did it. They were they were working, you know, five five days a week in the studio, on a That's salary. Right. Yeah, uh, it was yeah. a, just an amazing yeah, gig. Yeah. Um, I got the Andy Pryor gig. That was a touring gig, which was That's a, right. a, a, yeah. a, a, amazing, you know, and and that I did for did that gig for eight years from ninety six through to to sort of the early noughties and um mm, but right, uh, but yeah, i wanted yeah. to i just wanted to play with everyone and i just i didn't really yeah i was you know up north i was known as yeah the reader the big band guy and i just wanted to make a living playing with i wanted to do pop things i wanted to do shows i wanted to do sessions i wanted to do i wanted to be in the house band at ronnie scott's there was no kind of and i knew that to do most of those things i'd, I'd have to live in london and to be taken you know, r- wrongly at the time, you know, and, and wrongly now, you just because you live in London doesn't mean you're taken any more seriously than anyone else. But at the time, as a youngster, I was like, well, I want to be known as a, a London session guy, you know, whatever that means. Um, yeah, sure. Well, but, yeah, but, yeah, I, yeah, but I didn't, yeah. but I, d- but I didn't want to move to London in as much as I'm a home person. The North is my home, and and you know, hopefully, in you know, a few years time when the kids have have gone that's where I'll relocate with Lara and we'll buy a nice place in Cheshire and have a load of dogs and I'll still continue to do gigs in London, but a bit like Simon's sure. done done now, you know. It, exactly, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do yeah. want to come back up north. But, you know, when I was young and I was, I was 20, I mean, I was late. I was 27 when I moved to London. But by then I was already doing West End shows, depping um, for Mike Smith. I, I'd, I'd done some nice gigs, you know, I did Shirley Bassey's gig while I still lived in the north. But they were all as I saw them, you know, putting me in the good, you know, get, getting me known down there before I actually moved down there. And then I was lucky that, the, you know, I moved down with a gig already in the bag. I got asked to do like a big Elvis tribute with a bunch of London guys. A great MD called Barry Robinson asked me to do it. So the day I moved down, I, I picked up a big drum kit that Premier were giving me for the tour. 
uh, Premier Genista mm. kit. It was yeah, picked up that yeah, on the yeah. on the way. So I had I had a car full of my stuff that I was moving with, and then I had to pick up a Ronnie Tut style double bass drum. Ronnie Tut vibe, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kit, yeah. kit, kit <laughs> all, uh, as well. Mega. So so I, I turned up at this new new place that I was renting with with Simon Willis-Croft and his brother John and a great He's drummer down here also, called yeah. Ali Van Ryan. Really great. Oh, great Ali, drummer down yeah, here. I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um yeah. and and I was the first guy of the four of us to move in. So I, so I a- arrived sort of at having picked up the the kit at Premier in Leicester on the way down. I arrived probably at about mid afternoon, and I I'd never played with a a double bass drum kit before. So nobody else was in the house. We had this big living room. So I set it up in the living room till, you know, it took me till about nine ten o'clock at night. And then I had to set it down again, put it in the car because the first rehearsal for this tour started at 10 a.m. the next morning and then off I went on tour. So I kind of moved down and went straight off on tour. And then mm. and then Barry Robinson was also the MD of the Rat Pack and I'd already been depping on the Rat Pack for Matt Skelton when it was a touring yeah, show. Yeah. That yeah. went out again in August and Matt couldn't do a lot of the dates. So Barry suggested the two of us sharing the chair for a while, which we did. And then that went yeah. into the West End for four years. And then Matt got busy with the John Wilson Orchestra. And I it yeah. became my gig. And so, you know, the transition was, it was, it, I was dead, dead lucky, you know. And that that's, once I got the Rat Pack and it was in the West End, and I'd already, I was already depping on quite a few shows as well. It was suddenly it went from Elliot the Big Band guy to Elliot the Theatre guy. And I've always been a, a little bit like, I don't want to be known as a, a guy. I want to just be the drummer. You know, I want to, I don't want people in the pop industry not to call me because they think I just play swing. And I don't want people in the theatre industry to not call me because I'm a non-reading pop player. You know, every, all the stereotypes coming out at once. But It's um, inevitable. I was talking to... A, there's, we had these people building... A, we've had a new driveway put in. Uh, this is not some weird divergence, by the way. Um, and I was talking to <laughs> the guy today. He was asking me about... He said, oh, you're going up to your little drum studio, you know, because I was coming up here to work yeah. uh, this morning. And then he was just saying, so, you know, just tell me a little bit about music, you know. And I just said, well, you know, uh, you know, I did this, that and the other and blah, blah, blah. I worked with these different people. And I said, but the thing about the thing that happens with all of us is you get typecast. You become, you know, I'm Dave Walsh, the jazz drummer. That's what people say, you know, and I, you know, I teach kind of jazz and, you know, whatever. And it's just, I'm just a drummer, just a musician that happens to have a specialism with this area and, you know, and you're, you know, you're very modest about that thing of saying, you're saying, like you said, you were lucky, you know, it's like, it's not just luck, mate, you know, you've got to have the skills to go into that environment. Like, you know, the London, that show scene and all those gigs that you did when you first moved to London, those touring shows and all that stuff. It's like that level of playing is on a par with any in the world, in my opinion. And you've got to have the skill set to do that. You've got to be able to, you know, not just read the parts and sound great and play in time and have a great vibe and play that music stylistically right. You've also got to get on with people and all that other stuff that's really important to sort of have to do that gigging life thing, you know. And and also you're, you know, you weren't that old then and you're learning, aren't you? You're still learning about all those aspects of stuff. You know, the the experience that you that you bring is still it's still an experience that's that's changing and going to evolve. You know, and take you into the future and shape your future. You know, so um, anyway, yeah, it was just weird how we get typecast. I just wanted to mention that thing because yeah, because I think you did get typecast a bit. I thought I always thought that because you know you said about and when you said you were up here, you said something funny. You said I was known as the big band and the 
uh, what else? Reading. The, the reader Reading. and the big band. Yeah. And it's like, I didn't know you was that at all. That You were the. You, you, you knew were, me as, a, like, as some twat from Wilmslow. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were some twat from Wilmslow with a loud laugh who was like, uh, and, and someone actually, people used to say, was kind of quite similar to me in some ways. You were ostensibly from a, a rocky and maybe a fusiony background. You played jazz and you played big band music and you're into that and you're into, you know, what I would say is maybe slightly more sophisticated pop or rock music. And that's just like, sounds like me, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. So that was why we got on because we were into James Taylor and Carlos Vega and we were into playing swing and we we're into big band music and Buddy Rich and we saw the hilarity in all kinds of manners of farcical situations, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it's that thing again at the end of the day is is that, you know, you, we have the perception, don't you? You perceive that people saw you as the reader and the big band drummer and I didn't. I, I just saw you as someone that played jazz, who's a fusion drummer, yeah. you know, and was into playing all sorts of different styles of music. But, you, but was also, was a really good, exceptionally good reader, you know, that's for sure. But that's just a skill that you were good at. You know, it's just one of those things, isn't it? You yeah. were, you've I always mean, I, been I, a very good yeah, reader. Well, I had to, I had to work, yeah, well, I had to work really, it was a skill I worked really hard at, and it was something I knew, Absolutely. I knew, I, knew I had to get if I was going to, if sure. I was going to be successful, certainly living in London. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and it took me, it, it didn't come easy to me by any stretch, but it was, it was the one thing I can remember think being absolutely, you know, not passionate, but just like, I'm going to get this, um, because... Mm. Because it's mm. gonna it's gonna lead to I mean originally it was I was so furious at not getting the the, the gig with the Salford University big band um, when I knew I could play that <laughs> yeah, yeah, type that of music really I knew I could play that music I knew I could play it better <laughs> yeah, than better than anyone else and it was like but I wasn't yeah, getting yeah. I wasn't getting it on a technicality it was like hang on a minute. So, oh, so yeah, I'd love to have been in that. I'd love to have been there. Well, it was uh, when someone said, "Yeah, you know, it's not. Yeah, it's great, but you know, someone else is getting what?" Yeah, yeah. Well, it was. <laughs> well, I remember it was. It was Robin Dewhurst I auditioned for, and, uh, and it was. Yeah, know, of and, uh, You know, he's he's a genius, and um, and the Mega guy that the guy that yeah, got, the, yeah. I can't remember who it was that got it, but I remember going and seeing him in a concert, uh, and he was a, again, he was a great reader, but he he swung like a statue's cock, you know, it was like. Yeah, did you trip him up on the way out of the building? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but it was a, it was a yeah, good it was yeah. a good learning curve because again it's like yeah, exactly. it's like this gig yeah. requires this. You may be the greatest yeah. you may be the greatest guy in the world, but if you haven't got this particular set of skills, then you're not going to get this gig. So go away and get those skills and audition next year, which is what I did. I auditioned a year later, got the gig, and it was then doing the Salford yeah. University big band that Malcolm Melling saw me play and recommended me for the Andy Pryor gig, and that was eight years of a, yeah. eight years of, of work there and then. You know, the, the hard work mm. that I did driving up to Birmingham, sitting behind Mike Smith every week on a Monday, you know, at, m at yeah. my own expense, coming home, listening to the radio show, transcribing what I thought Mike's drum part looked like, putting it on a stand, playing along to it, all those hours paid off for eight yeah. years of work with Andy Pryor's gig, which I'd have never got, Absolutely. you know, and it's, yeah. sometimes yeah. you don't see that while you're doing it, but I, I can trace every sort of big gig that I've ever had in my life, everything where I've gone, oh, that was lucky that I was ready for that. I can trace it back to like some hard work that I've had to do or something I've really not enjoyed doing and gone, why am I doing this? You know, this is killing me. And then you, you, you look back and you go, ah, it was preparing me for that. You know, and and it's uh, it's mm. all it's always been the way. You know, ha, you know, ha, 
any time I've ever worked my ass off at something, and, and let's be clear, I hate hard work. I'm lazy. I'm inherently lazy. Me too. I, I yeah. have to work yeah, really yeah. hard to make myself work hard, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, no, totally. Uh, I've got a lot better at it, but I used to be terrible. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Net, net, Netflix isn't going to watch itself, is it? But um, No, that's... <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But every time I've done that and I've sacrificed my time and and worked hard, it's paid off. It's paid off. It's, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is. Um, yeah, it definitely, so it there's, definitely there's, does. Yeah. You, what you were saying about, you know, moving to London and that trans transition, you know, the, there is an element of luck for all gigs we get, you know, that you were at the right jam session or you met the right person or whatever. But it, qu quite rightly, you say, once you're given that opportunity to dep on a West End show or, you know, MD a pop gig or go and do whatever it is you do, you've still got to have the right skill set to maintain that gig and be and not be fired after the first rehearsal, you know, and like you say, get on with people and make the music make the music sound good with what you bring to the table. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the look thing's interesting because I think that, I, I think sort of profound things with look are maybe uh, random, but I think that, I think that other, like, we, you know, we can cite things as I was lucky that I was in that situation because it led to these things. But I think at some other point, not long after the timeline of when that happened, something else would have happened because of the person that you are and the way you play that would have connected you to those people anyway. Yeah, you know. it's like a sliding doors <laughs> moment, I guess. You know, you got to... I think, I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, because it's a sort of, you know, we, we don't have a massive change in personality, do we, because of... Uh, I mean, some people do. Some people, you know, they, they have a life-changing event or something happens and they become, you know... But I think generally most of us, especially musicians that are kind of working sort of type musicians... It's just that thing we, we find our way to that spot by hook or by crook almost, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, some things, uh, I mean, it was even it's just interesting that thing of like when you study or you're trying to do something and if you go and get somebody to help you instead of instead of you sort of waving along in a line side to side of the path you're trying, that person just helps you stay a bit more on the path that you're trying to, you know, they're looking at it from the outside and going, this is what this person needs to do. And they're just kind of jollying you along without hindering you, you know. Uh, and I think that yeah, it's funny yeah, that yeah. in our own careers that we, that our, our friends and people that play around us and that love the way we play do that for us in a way, don't they? Because they stick by us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and then you get these relationships. So the other thing I was, I was going to ask you about, um, because obviously, yeah, you, you know, you moved to London and and uh, and you got involved in certain projects, and you were doing Sid Lawrence, weren't you, as on and off as well? Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, which was a great gig to have done with, you know, and it's not, a, you know, it's not a huge pool of people actually, is it? Because a lot of these people, they sort of they do these gigs, and they're especially like really good trumpet players like Andy Greenwood and people like that. You know, these people are, are they're rare like jewels, aren't they? You know. Um, that kind of get involved in these different projects, yeah. Because um, they because they've got a specific skill, you know. But um, well, there's the thing of like yeah of of moving to London and getting involved in all those projects. But it's about these kind of partnerships that you've had with people, you know, um, certain musicians. And just to sort of talk a bit about that, really, because there's obviously your own band that you do. 
Um, but then there's like certain bass players that I know you've played a lot with and love to play with. And one, one of them is a great mutual friend of ours, Mr. Hammond, yeah, who yeah. is um, absolutely world-class individual in every sense of the word. Very much so. Um, but yeah, it's just that thing about, talk a bit about the, how important those relationships are. You well, know, I think, between I think um, from a drummer's perspective, you know, bass is the one, you know, I've, uh, that, that's... Yeah. I, and you can see that, throughout all the everyone's career really you know the the, the the there are people that work so well with uh you know t drum and bass teams that work so well together you have people like um Questlove and Pino Palladino for example or uh, Ian Thomas and Lawrence Cottle you know um yeah and, yeah. and a lot Gad and Lewis Johnson or Picaro and Lewis yeah, Johnson or yeah. Picaro and his brother Mike Picaro you know or Willie Weeks and Gad and all that oh, on yeah. those records yeah yeah and, and a lot yeah. of the times yeah. I think people who know what that's all about they will a lot of the time they will book book them as a collective they will say well i want this guy and this guy on the same you they know do. on the same session and and um for me you know uh, we, we i've worked with a lot of bass players you know and what's really interesting is that you you realize uh, and i'm sure you've talked about this before but there are some guys that you you look at and you go i really want to work with them their pockets incredible and then you sit down and you try and play with them and it just doesn't click and it's not that anyone's playing. Yes. It's not that anyone's playing badly or anyone's doing something wrong. It's just that it doesn't gel. It's not. It's not going to happen all the time. And um, I've got a few bass yeah. players. I like usually that. think it's actually me that's crap. No, oh, yeah, I, t I totally go away going, oh, I can't. No, something's gone wrong. Um, it's my it's fault. It's my fault. Yeah. <laughs> and then I go away and think think about that shell stacking career in Tesco's again for a while. But um, that's right. Yeah. But yeah. but 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 again, uh, you know, as I've got older and I've, you know, you, you again, you build up that conviction and that belief in yourself. You 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 you're big enough and bold enough to go. You know what? It's not me. It's not him. It's just it doesn't work, and that's it. fine. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think you know I've nailed it down to a handful of players, certainly bass player wise, that I just. It's like. If I'm given the choice, get these guys on it. Um, you know, of, of one of which is is Rich Hammond, and, and Rich Hammond in any genre. I mean, I, I, for sure. I got asked to put a, a band together for a little jazz knock in a pub in in Ealing just before lockdown. Um, and we were, it, it was an evening gig, and I got, I, I asked Ray Gelato to to play tenor because I've not played with him for ages, and I love Ray. Um, Great. Yeah, I, I got yeah. plays a lot with Sebastian, doesn't he? He's played a lot with De Crom, didn't he? Yeah, loads. De did together. his gig for a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he did. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so I got uh, Jamie Safir on keys, who's a really good friend of mine, lovely, right. lovely player. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got Mark Cox on guitar, who lives down the road from me, and I get on great with him. And uh, oh, um, right. and during the day, we'd been rehearsing for Leo's upcoming tour. This was before it all got cancelled because of COVID. And so I thought, well, that's brilliant. Rich, Rich will be down, you know. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll ask Rich to do it. And of course, he wanted to do it. And I've not done a yeah. swinger gig, you know, a little jazz gig with Rich for ages. You know, I've done a few with Jeremy Sassoon and and, and whatnot. But one way you're just playing standards and just going for it. And um, but of course, Rich didn't have his upright, which is an amazing upright player as well. Um, He's really good. Uh, yeah, but yeah, he, but he, yeah. because he was down rehearsing with Leo and he and he had his electric with him and he'd come on the train he didn't have his upright and i was just like no just bring you bring your electric let's do it on that and you know it was just a joy you know we'd, we'd been playing leo say tunes all day and i had been digging that and then and then he came and he came and he just tore the ass out of it um 
playing swing. Because, and again, it's that whole thing of we can sit on a tour bus and talk about the types of music we're into, and it's exactly the same. And I think that is part of the connection as much as anything. His influences mm-hmm. are the same as mine, and his belief in what music should be about is the same at mine, the same as mine. And then, so I've got, so yeah, I've got Richard's yeah. very high up there. Cy Goulding is really high up there. Completely different player to Richard, but totally. equally as yeah. as world class. You know, it's just like oh, mega. You know, the the conviction. You talk about conviction and belief. Every note he plays, he means, and it's like, and it's done with such love and such joy. It's like wow. You know, we, you watch him play and he's dancing about. It's just fabulous. So Cy Goulding and Cy Goulding, you know, does Spice Fusion with me. Um, we, we, he was like his name's always first on the team sheet for that gig um, and then um, there's a guy down here who plays for the James Taylor Quartet called uh, Andrew McKinney oh plays with Pat plays yeah, with Pat yeah, yeah. Um, and it, again just yeah, great. just beautifully understated but like every note is the right note yeah, and then in the right place yeah yeah um, and then there are uh, Dave Troke down here as well, who was the first bass player. I, I auditioned with Dave Troke for the Leo gig in 2013, and we got the gig together. And, man, that... Oh, I didn't know anything about that. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, we both went and uh, auditioned at the same time. And I, I knew Dave, because um, he te- teaches at BIM as well. Um, so we mm. hung out there, but we'd never actually really played a gig together. We, I, I'd seen him play, he'd seen me play, we'd socialised, he lives in Acton, which is only about three miles from Ealing. And uh, we'd hung out and we got on great, but we'd never really played together. And, and again, he's another one that turned up at that audition, like I did, and he absolutely nailed his homework. Not just learned the, the, the album recording or the, li- or the studio recording, but gone out and researched YouTube clips of of leo doing it live so that if leo said oh well let's do this version we were both on it so we clicked straight away not just with with our our work ethic but his pocket man is just like talk about digging in and and just Mm. just fabulous feel you know anything he plays dave he's a a wonderful player um and uh, and then and you talk about upright players well my my go-to guy really for such a long time is a lad down here called joe pettit who uh, runs oh, yeah. runs the Len Phillips big band now? He bought that off Len when Len retired. Bought the pad and runs it. Uh, fronts it. Doesn't play bass in it. He fronts it, and he's a great frontman. But that guy plays mm. bass like um, like Ray Brown. He just he just like takes no, a bit like da- right. like like Dave Lenane. That Dave Lenane. Like yeah, taking taking no that. prisoners. Yeah, yeah. Taking no prisoners. Really digging into the instrument. But his swing feel is is sublime and, and like again if i if i need to do something that if i need to book somebody that and it's a big band thing or a straight ahead thing then it's 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 him you know it's it, it he's just magnificent and he plays a great so you know again i'm that all of these players can take a great solo but that's the the last thing i i, I think about it's it's like how do they do they li- do they listen to to me in as much in the same mm. way that I'm listening to them and all of them do they they there's no they're all the best at what they do but there's no ego there it's not like well you're either with me or you're on your own it's kind of like they yeah, yeah. you know if I like if I play with with any of those guys I can put something in on a gig um that maybe we've been doing a gig like Joe Pettit and I for example have been doing the rat pack for maybe together for maybe 10 years now and we've been playing let's say under my skin God knows how many times. If I put something new in on a gig, like that, maybe a little bass drum figure catch that I do that fits in with what Sinatra is singing, 
the next gig, I'll do the thing in the same place, and and Joe's right on it with me. He's he's heard that, and he's gone, oh, I'm having a bit of that as well. And I love that because there are so many players out there that get lost in their own world when they're playing that they're not. Yes, they're kind of listening to you and they're trying to lock in with you, but they're not really listening. And and it's the guys, no. all those guys, you know, Richard does that a lot. Trokey does that a lot. And, and what I love about Dave Troke is he, he will suggest things in rehearsal. Like, rather than us doing a gig, a, a tour with Leo Sayer and then coming back a year later and we'll have three days of rehearsals, um, we've all listened to the live set from last time. We remember what we've done. Dave will come come and go, well, we did this on the last tour. Why don't we try this approach, this tour? And he brings something to the table every time. And I really I really love that. Rather than just regurgitating the same st stuff we did on the last tour, it's like, let's let's freshen this up a bit. And uh, that's that's what I look for, certainly in a bass player, is that that it's a relationship. It's 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 just like a relationship in life, isn't it? You, you, you listen to each other, you, you discuss things, you... Mm. You're intuitive all the time, and the most important thing is the end product, not how well you play individually on stage. And I try, you know, running Spice Fusion with Simon Niblock, who, again, is that... I mean, Simon is about 15 years older than me, um, yet we, we, we're both influenced by the same guys. We both listen to the same music. And again, who else am I going to run a big band with but but that guy? But, that's, mm. but Spice Fusion is a, is a band that our only rule was no swing. It was a big band, but we only play funk, Latin, soul, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, because we thought, well, big band music has to move forward. It's, you know, there are so many great bands out there doing tribute to Ellington, tribute to Basie, tribute to Glenn Miller, and they're doing it better than any other band on the circuit. We can't compete with that. But at the same time, we, big band music has to go somewhere. It can't just be a constant tribute to somebody else. So... We thought, well, let's let's do this. Let's. I'm writing original stuff for that band. Simon's an incredible arranger. Um, but but what it gave us both the chance to do was book the guys that that we feel that way about, that we want to work with, who we know have that passion and treat music and the same way we do. Mm. And and because it, you know, let's be clear, it doesn't pay a lot of money. How can putting 17 guys out on a gig pay anyone any money? There isn't the money no, out there no. for that. But everyone who does it. Ha brings to the table an absolute commitment and a, and a and just the best of they're the best at what they do. So you've got Andy Greenwood on trumpet, you've got Tom Walsh on trumpet, you've got uh, Paul Newton on trumpet, and you've got um, who's the fourth trumpet? Well, on the last gigs we had Dan Carpenter that was amazing, um, but sometimes Tom Reese Roberts does it, and then on trombones, right? And, and 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 again, all those guys, all those guys, we we get on with so well off stage. You know, you, you'd go out for a beer with any oh, one yeah, of them yeah, away yeah. from music, yeah, and that's so important. Then on trombones, we've got uh, Simon Walker, who who did the Rat Pack with me in the West End for four years. You got Chris Traves, who's our producer. He produced both albums that we've got out. He's an incredible engineer and producer, but also an incredible musician and trombone player. Um, you got uh, okay. Trevor Myers on trombone, who's just played with everyone. Yeah, um, great, and then yeah, Mark yeah. Frost on bass trombone from my Andy Pryor Mega. days, who's the funniest, yeah, one yeah. of the funniest guys I've ever met, but but also one oh, of the absolutely. best bass trombone terrifying. players in the world. Um, yeah, he's mega. Yeah, yeah. you've got... He's, he's, he's a very, very funny. Oh, man. he's pretty <laughs> brilliant. Um, then you've got uh, James Pusey on guitar, who's, again, one of my, one of my closest friends and, uh, and again, just a joy to work with, you know, as far as dedication to getting the right sound, the right feel, just utter professionalism through and through, but also combining it with having a laugh and, 
and enjoying himself rather than it being a, a science, you know. Um, so James is great on, gu on guitar. He studied at Leeds, I think, for a while. Um, and then James Treweek on keys, who's just a beautiful soul, just a real mellow kind of laid-back guy that just doesn't make a fuss, just turns up and plays the right part all the time, you know, just doesn't... Mm. Just you know, for a big band, you just need a piano player that's you're not going to know he's there, but you know they're there. It's just staggering what he does. That's exactly um, the role, yeah. And then that's the exactly the role, yeah. And then the saxes are um, Simon Willis Croft, obviously one of my best mates. Um, Simon Niblock, mm. who, he's all right. He's, isn't he? he's all right he's all for right. A, for, yeah. a, for an eighties pop boy. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Simon Niblock, who I run the band with, of course, <laughs> one of my closest friends. Um, we have Adrian Ravel on baritone. Simon Bates on tenor, who's a roaring uh, tenor sax player. Um, yeah, yeah. Great jazz player. Uh, and Simon Marsh did the last gigs, who's a, a young young chap from down here who's, who's a great arranger himself, does a lot of shows. Play, you know, a lot of the time when, when you're booking sax players, you have, to, you have to make sure that they can play flute and clarinet as well, you know, which is kind of important in a big band. And So it's a really, you know, they're all guys that... It's great socially. They all are influenced by the same things that Simon and I are influenced by. It's, 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 it's great, you know. And those are the kind of people, I, you know, that you try, you try and surround yourself with, don't you? What, whatever you're doing, whether it's running your own thing or if you have any say yeah. at all in who who's in the band that's being put together for something, you want to be, you want to be with the guys that you've got that relationship with because you know that it's, it's going to take care of itself. The music the music will always be put first and, and that the end product will be, will be beautiful. And it was, I think, sorry to prattle on about this, but I think it was, I think it was when I moved to London, uh, you know, the first year or so that I was there, I was really obsessed with getting in with the big boys, you know, like I wanted to work with Lawrence Cottle. I wanted to work with Steve Pierce. I wanted to work with Trevor Barry, all these incredible legendary bass players. Um, and, and when I did eventually get, get to do that, it, it was, uh, it, it was brilliant, but it but you realise that they've got their team in the same way that I've got my team now, and sure, you, you're yeah, only yeah. there for for one gig, and it doesn't matter how well you play, or even if you realise, oh, I, I can't play with this guy, it just doesn't work. And of course, when I'm young, yeah, yeah. when I'm young and fresh faced, it's definitely my fault. I'm I'm shit. These guys have been playing more sessions than I'll ever play, so it's definitely me. But now, mm, years mm. later, I've worked with guys who are legends down here and I still can't play with them and it's like that's just not gonna that that duo that that team thing isn't just gonna work and, and that's fine that's absolutely fine because oh another no, notable mention one of the old boys uh, down here who's just a beautiful soul beautiful guy an upright player called Dave Olney have you heard of Dave Olney uh, no, actually, no, not a name that I know. Um, no, I mean, he plays great no. electric as well, but he's a wonderful upright player. Uh, he he, oh, right. he did the Michael Parkinson house band for 20 years. Um, so okay. he's used to working oh, with... Um, right. Who was the MD that MD'd that? Uh, Parky's MD. I did... He, uh, oh. That's that's. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure. So. He run, runs his own trio anyway, but a legendary TV MD wrote the theme tune to um, the Silla Black show, Blind Date. You know, um, he wrote that. Oh yeah, no. I was, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, you'd recognise his, his face. Yeah, I, I should know his name because I've gigged with him loads. But Dave Olney was another one. And just again, as soon as I met Dave, the first time I met Dave Olney was when I was at college and I was sat behind Mike Smith at the BBC Big Band learning how to read. 
and Dave Olney, mm. Dave Olney had come in and was depping for Roy Babington, who was the BBC big band bass player at the time. And Dave Olney came oh, in. Oh, yeah, of course. And yeah, Dave, yeah. Dave was depping for um, Roy Babington. And the guest on that show was the Australian multi-instrumentalist James Morrison. Um, oh, amazing. And uh, Dave Olney is, was so funny, such a dry sense of humour. And, and me and him, and I was, I would have been 19 at the time, me and him just clicked from a social standpoint. You know, we went to the pub after the session and he just had me in fits of laughter. And, and actually, well, weirdly, while I've been on chatting to you here, he's just tried calling me, actually, which, uh, which is interesting because I've not, not heard from him for a while. Oh, great. Um, but, it, but, you know, th for me, you know, and I, I would say this to any, and I've said this to a lot of students, don't just get in with people because you think they're going to give you loads of work you've you've got to yes spread yourself around get to know people and get to play with people but yes you you want to be able to lock in with with guys bass players pianist guitarist you want to be able to make music with them but also don't i, I hate it when people do that pseudo friend thing where where they're your best mate and you know that they're trying to be your best mate because they want a gig off you um you know, I, I yeah, yeah. Well, you've got to find it. You've got to make a team, haven't you? It's the team thing, yeah. You know, and everybody. It's like Lawrence Cottle. Is Ian Thomas and Lawrence Cottle when I was growing up? Well, that was one of the team oh, yeah. dreams. Still teams, is. You know? Still is. Still is. Yeah, it still is. And then you look at all those. We because I was going to, you know, I was wanted to get back at the end to talk about the Leo Sayer and just like playing those like the you know gigs uh, gro grooves from gigs I'd play you know and just like the people that played on those records wow you know oh, it's just that thing of reading those record sleeves and seeing those great partnerships yeah but it's like you know those people didn't get in with each other they 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 got together because they could play together and and you've got to create your own teams and everybody should find their like you say find your teams of people create a vibe yeah and you know, me and me and Rich, uh, me and Hammond. I, I love playing with Rich. There's there's really uh, three or four bass players that I really love playing with who are my kind of similar to you, really. You know, that, um, uh, and these these two particularly that are kind of omnipresent through most of the last twenty years for me. Uh, one of them is Richard Hammond. And uh, and the thing with when we play together in whatever situations we play together and people and we're playing, you know, we've got, the, we've got we have a connection like you and him do, and it's and they're different connections, but they're they're personal, you know. His people always say there's like a there's something about how deep the groove is, and it's like that comes from a partnership. It comes from a team. It's nothing to do with socialising and finding the the people to cut around with and be getting in with. No, it's got nothing to do with it. It's, but it's created that thing. Yeah. It, because of how we play together, you know, and the same for you. So, yeah, it's great advice for young players. And uh, and I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the kids that I teach at Leeds, because I think it's quite a different environment than the BIM thing. A lot of them do do that because they create those partnerships at college, you know, and they sort of go, oh, these are the people that are going to be in my social group. Right. Uh, and they find the people that they really like playing with and like socializing with. Yeah, yeah. And then, and those partnerships develop, and they stay together out of college. You know. Well, that's how. And, that's uh, how all those partnerships down here. You know, like your Lawrences and your Ians and your Steve Pearce <laughs> and Ralph Salmons. They all grew up together. You know, and They're all from that. Thing. And, and yeah, to and yeah. to to, yeah, to yeah. come down to London naively like I did, and think that the first time I got a gig with uh, Steve Pearce on bass, I was I went home and was like, right, it's only a matter of time now before the phone rings. Steve Pierce is recommending me for stuff. Don't work like that. If Steve Pierce gets asked to put a drummer for something. He's going to call Ralph Salmons or, or one of those guys. Yeah. In the same way that any young whiz kid bass player that 
plays with me, even if I really love their playing. If I get asked to put a band together for a tour or a session, I'm going to call Rich or or Cy Goulding or Andrew McKinney. You know, like, yeah, you know, it's totally so. And and you're you're spot on with what you say. You know, students will, and I always say this to students: create your own, uh, create your own scene, create your own. Um, Network because yeah, future beca yeah. because that's yeah. that's going to be the network people talk about twenty years from now. How do I get in with those? Well, you don't. If you're lucky, exactly. if you're lucky, you'll get to play with them a few times and you know dip your toe into that scene for a for a gig or for a session. But ultimately, you need to create your own thing, and that comes about these days from organizing ja you know organizing jams at college, organizing a, a little night in a local. I would say to kids, you know. Go down to your local pub and just see for a few drinks if the if they'll do live music and get a little jam session going because jam sessions are brilliant because you can then handpick the rhythm section you want to be the house band and then handpick mm. who the special guest is and get guys along who you want to play with who you want to hear you play you know there's nothing better there's no better recommendation than somebody actually being on the stand with you and hearing you play up close that's the best recommendation you can get yeah 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 it's so true. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's great. It's just a socialising thing as well, isn't it? It's a chance to, you know, create a vibe, get people to come to you, and uh, be part of your thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and and play, you know, play social music. I always loved is that Jeff Picaro, um, at the uh, MIT, I think. You know that what do they call it? Thursday throwaway Thursday, throwback oh, yeah, Thursdays yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. In the Jeff Beccaro interview, you know, and he's really, it's one of my favorite um, sort of drum clinic -y style interview things. He's so, like, passionate on there. Yeah, he really um, is, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he talks about the social, it, it's a social music, it's a social thing. And, uh, and it's kind of getting back with the drums, you know, getting back to that roots thing. Of 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 where rhythm and drums comes from, and, and our sort of the dichotomy of what we are, what we, you know, what we do in music, and the origins of it, you know, and um, that was always the thing I was like, because you know, listen to West African percussion music, it's it's spiritual music, it's community, it's it's played by you know, people within the, the community have those roles in the band. They're all playing different layers of rhythms and there's people dancing to those rhythms and it's all this different stuff going on. Yeah. And it's kind of, yeah. it's the origins of the triplet and it's the origins of swing and jazz and all that, you know, uh, without take away the intellectual side of it. It's the rhythmic, the rhythmic backbone of it, you know, it's, it's heritage. And then you're trying to play that music and you're like, you've got this thing of like, I want to be as, I want to be as organic as that. This was like the Jack Jeanette and Peter Erskine thing for me, you know. That was where I always found this kind of like Jack was that thing. It there was, it was, it was. He, I remember this, he did a drum clinic in I think 1990 in London, and somebody asked him about his perception of time, and his description was, and you might know this. I don't know. I might have mentioned this before on a previous thing, but he said like, like I see time as like a washing machine. I see this cylinder that moves consistently in one direction forward and it's consistent, you know, it's got a speed and then it, chooses yeah. to, it goes to another speed for another piece of music and it's a, this speed for this piece of music. And inside the cylinder is all these clothes and they're all tumbling randomly within this consistently moving circle that's going forward in time, you know. And he said, that's basically how I see my playing. 
<laughs> and and I just thought I fucking love that, you know, that thing of having a uh, of having a core time thing, but yet being able to sort of be. And do you remember last week we were talking? You were talking about that samba thing. You were saying yeah, you got yeah. into practicing that the bone to go to go thing, yeah, and then yeah. playing random things over the top of it you know yeah yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and it was that and i was remembering because we talked about that and i was thinking about this thing with jack you were playing that demonstrating that thing last week and it was like really just being able to sort of and then this thing of oh, i can play any kind of thing over the top of anything it's actually there's more of a science to it than that you know? sure sure um, and so it's like you know, do i go down the science route or do i do i go down the tradition route the the organic route but just that thing of what picaro was saying about this thing of it's a social thing it's a social music yeah. the beats and everything about it, it's got a social thing about it you know and so getting that message across to students and then there's the thing of like where you come to professional gigs and you're faced with you know, like um, Leo Sear, when when I need love, and that what's that tune called? When I need, when I need you, you or, when I need you, when I need you, yeah. Which is a tune like I remember that from growing up. It was a tune. Of it was course, in our yeah. household. It yeah, was yeah. An, an amazing, you know, boom, bat, yeah, you know, like, and I never knew that Jeff Picaro played that, didn't he? Ne neither did I until I auditioned for Leo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly you go. Like, there's a thing of, like, you learn to play that tune and then you go, oh, Jeff Picaro played that. Yeah. And was there a kind of point with you where you felt like that double responsibility oh, yeah. for, like, learning that groove, well, you know? Well, here's the thing. For, what, for, my the process. for my audition with Leo, I had to play uh, that song, obviously, when, when I Need You, uh, yeah, yeah. Thunder in My Heart, which is Jeff Picaro. And you yes. make and you make me feel like dancing, which is Steve Gadd. Steve Gadd. <laughs> oh, great! <laughs> yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah, Cheers for that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 brilliant. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but but again, I mean, I, ch I t say to anyone, go and listen to the original. You make me feel like dancing. Absolutely. The drum part is, and I did. I I just you know got it on Spotify or whatever or Apple Music. Listen, I was listening to it. Chart. I always chart out songs that I've got to learn before I before I start learning them. I write them out. Um, yes, it's good. That's a good technique, actually, to get the map and get a yeah, vibe of yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the memory, true, actually, the memory, you know. the memory side of it for me is a, is a visual memory as well as an audible one. So I remember, yeah, what the I remember yeah. what the I remember what the cheat sheet looks like, and I remember what the sections are. Then I learn the lyrics if I can, because if you can sing the song, you know yeah. the song. Um, yeah, me too. Actually, I very similarly to you. Actually, if I'm really seriously learning something. Uh, I do that. I'll write. I write it out as a form. I don't do that a lot, but when I'm like, if I was doing that gig like you, I was auditioning for a gig like that. I'd do exactly the same and learn yeah. the words. Yeah, and yeah. Know the the tune as a kind of as an as a as an organism almost. You it's know, a, it's a nice thing to do. In the drum part. Yeah, it's a nice thing to do as well. When like, and this came up in the audition that you know Leo would stop us halfway through a tune and say, "Okay, let's let's go back to blah blah blah," and you can reference mm. it. Then you can say to him, "Oh, Leo, so should we go from and you recount the line to him." He's like, oh, he knows the yeah. he knows the song, you know. It's he like knows, he knows the songs. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but but yeah. but I was listening to you know, I was charting out. You make me feel like dancing. I'm going, fucking hell, who's playing drums on this? It's incredible, you know. And yeah, I, he's not messing around, uh, is no, he? And, and, not, and, uh, and, I, and I sort of googled it, and, and there, there it is. It's like, <laughs> oh my god, Steve yeah. Gadd played for him, you know. And and of course, yeah, it's Steve yeah. Gadd, and it's Richard T, and it's Abe Laborial on bass, and it's like. 
It's Abe Laborial, isn't it? Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. This yeah, is yeah. ridiculous, you know. Yeah. And then you go, then yeah. you have that moment of like, right, I've got to do these songs justice. And then you go, well, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna mm. still gonna put my stamp on it. I can't play like Steve Gadd, but but if if Leo had wanted Steve Gadd on the live tour, then go and go and give Steve Gadd a call. He's you know he's asking me to do it, so I'm gonna do what I do and I'll approximate and I'll give it the, I'll keep within the spirit. That's the thing is like you don't want to copy these guys. You want to keep within the spirit of what they do, and that's the hard thing, because there was a great story I heard. I, I might have told you this last time we were chatting, but when when Steve Gadd started playing with Chick Career quite regularly. Um, he he yes. came to he came to Chick Career from a buddy background with all the rudiments and, and lightning fast single strokes and all this and Chick Career said to him, "Well, it's brilliant what you're doing." He said, "Go and listen to what Tony Williams is doing at the moment, though." And Gad went away and listened to Tony Williams for a few months. And Steve, not a lot of people know Steve and Tony are, are the same age. They, they they were born in the same year. But but I always yes, I always right. used to yeah, I always yeah. used to perceive Tony as being a lot older. But that's only because he'd no, been on the scene a lot he longer. He died young. Yeah, he died, he died young, young and, didn't he? And, and he also yeah. started playing with Miles when he was seventeen. Whereas Steve didn't when he really was very hit young. Yeah. He didn't really hit yeah. our attention until he was in his twenties. Steve. No, but um, that's true. Yeah. But yeah, Steve yeah. went away, listened to Tony, and didn't come back sounding like a Tony Williams clone. He came back no, sounding like the all. Steve Gad we know now. He took. He took Steve. Uh, he took um, Tony's vibe and Tony's approach and incorporated it into what he could already do. And and that to me is yeah. like the mark of a genius, you know. Because there are so many times when I'll so. I'll be listening to I'll go through phases of listening to a load of Steve Gadd or I'll be listening to loads of Vinnie all of a sudden, or loads of Weckle. And then when I sit down at the drums, I just it, they're playing drip feeds into mine, but it just sounds like. Ugh, sound like a poor man's Weckle or a poor man's Steve, you know, and it's like, it's like getting away from that kind of, you know, try and forget about the notes they're playing. Ask yourself why they play it. Why are they playing those notes? You know, yeah, and yeah. then, and then you, yeah, then you yeah. can have, then you've got a, a kind of um, a palette, uh, like a painting palette of, you're not using mm. the same colors mm. as them, but the palette's made of the same material. And then you can use, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's it, and, and I find that really fascinating, you know. And so now when I play, mm. when I play Leo's gig, which is the dream gig for me, you know, I'm, I'm never going to get to play for James Taylor. But all I, all I always said yeah, was, all I always, all I always wanted was to play for a singer songwriter who's writing original material of which I can put my stamp on as a drummer. And I'm getting to do, yeah. I'm getting to do that with Leo because although I've not played on any of his albums, he tends to do them all himself. He'll program in or put loops in or whatever. But I'm usually the first guy to play the new material live, so I, I have a say yeah. in what that's going to sound like played by, by a drummer, and that. And, yeah, and Leo yeah. is still an incredible songwriter. I mean, incredible. He's up there with anyone. Um, oh, he's amazing. And, and those records and the fact that who he was working with. And if you look at it, if you look back at it retrospectively now, I mean, I suppose it's a nostalgia thing for me in, in respect of, you know, he was uh, he was massive when I was a kid. You know, my mum and dad were really into him. And um, but there's also like, you know, that sort of typical British thing where anybody that's successful becomes a slight figure of fun, don't they? Yeah. There's always some kind of, you know, like all those programs. Or somebody was always, they find something and they take a rip out of it, and that's just the way the British are, you know. Whereas the, yeah. in America, it's not like that, you know. Uh, but the thing with Leo was, it's just that vibe of the fact that he's an incredible artist, incredible songs. And the fact that he was 
recording a lot of that music actually over there in the States and working with American producers and had a different kind of idea about maybe the way in which records are cut. You know, I don't know yeah. the story behind it. You'll know much more than me because you know him. I don't. But it's just a perception of somebody that you think, well, you know, that's why did Nick Kershaw did that, didn't he? He went and made that yeah, album, yeah. The Works, which flopped right. massively. I've got, I've still got a CD copy of that. It's a ridiculous. Vinny's on that album and Vin, Picaro, a, I think, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, it's all the guys. It's all the guys. It's fabulous. Yeah, album. yeah. You have to ask yourself, why did those people make those made that decision to go? To because you know the players that are playing on those records were cutting those records to a level which was going to be stand the test of time, you know, and was going to be some and and exactly because it is, and is now, you know, but you're still able to like you say uh, put your stamp on it because it, I think about the James Taylor thing you mentioned. Both me and you, you know, we we've both got you know we've that would be our dream gig, absolutely. Um, but I think about James Taylor records is I don't really know on most of the tunes what's going on in the drums still. Um, apart from a number of tunes that we can talk about with hilarity, like, um, you know, First Day of May with uh, Carlos Vegas. <laughs> yeah, Supito yeah. changing groove in bar two onto the one yeah. hand. Uh, and all those, and those little, and, like, and also... You know, like Never Die Young on the album, you know, like Letter in the Mail, how laid back that groove is and stuff. Jesus, yeah, yeah. But the sort of specifics about a lot of the grooves and a lot of that music, I just don't know anything about it because I just don't listen to the drums. And that's no, what's so weird about so, that gig. You know, that is is that, so, that's so true, uh, Dave. Um, if you asked me bizarre, to... It's bizarre, isn't it? You know? If you asked me to sit in, if Jamie, if I was at a gig and Steve Gadd went down and they said, is there a drummer in the crowd? Oh, yeah, I'm a drummer, I'll do yeah. it. I'd get up and I'd be like, I've no idea how this goes. No, but you'd be singing all the lyrics. I'd know the lyrics. And, tell, and saying know. to Larry Golding what all the chords are. And oh, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and oh, Jimmy Johnson, just do that bass thing that you do on the second yeah, chorus yeah. of the live... You know, no, but what the hell yeah. is... Yeah, it's so yeah, weird, yeah. and yet, and yet, if you ask me to sit in on uh, "Sweet Child of Mine" with Guns and Roses, I'd know it. I'd know it. No, perfect. I'd, I'd know the groove. I know the fills. I know, but with, yeah, but I'm so, I'm so busy true. listening to the whole product with James Taylor that I'm not really yeah, paying attention yeah, exactly. to the the absolute detail of what Carlos or Steve or anyone, even Conkle, man, what a what a player Conkle yeah, was. Yeah, amazing. Oh, you know, unbelievable. How laid back he was. You know, oh, he is he's incredible. It's, just, pocket, it's ridiculous. You know? It's ridiculous. So, so I mean that, yeah, but that's yeah. I mean that to me is testament to James. That's the to the music, yeah. You know, yeah, he, absolutely the even songs. because yeah. because I'm well aware that what Steve is doing, what Carlos is doing, and what Russ were doing is genius. But I couldn't tell you what's going on. I, 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 my drum, my drummer's gene doesn't draw me to what they're doing, even though I, I know that it's incredible because I'm too busy loving the melody, loving the chords, loving the, the harmonies, loving the BVs. It's like, what? this is just, it's perfection. It's, it's utter, yeah. utter perfection. Yeah, yeah. No, it, absolutely. And it's just really interesting, uh, sort of, I suppose, at the, the end of this really, is to have got to that point with it with it all because he's talking again about you know the the thing about that music the core of it it is, it is it's all from the ground up and it's all from the time it's all from time feel up you know yeah yeah and uh having that kind of being because i was the, the thing i talk about with pop drummers when i used to teach quite a lot i used to teach quite a lot of pop drummers at leeds when i didn't have my full-time job you know when i was part-timer and i was doing one-to-one -one drum teaching most of the time and i got asked um 
as I as I kind of was there over the years, some of the pop drummers kind of got hip to the fact that I just didn't just play jazz and I actually played, you know, straight music. So they perceived it. And I used to do a class where I had uh, just the year group of all the drummers together. Yeah. And they used to do it with Nick, one of our other drum tutors, and Colin Sutton, uh, one of the bass tutors. We used to sort of team teach it. And at the beginning of the year, we used to ask the drummers to bring in a tune that was really influential on them. They could share with everybody else, you know. But we used to bring a tune in as well that was really influential. And also, there was a, there was a kind of pop tune. Mm-hmm. And the one I used to choose, and you know this very well, and this is a track that I do know the drum part well, uh, to um, not to be able to play it, but I know how it kind of is constructed. And I used to use it as, as an example of, as a tune develops, normally the thing is that the drums go from this thing of simplicity to more complex and become more open and become a bigger thing in the music. You know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Line Em Up on Hourglass <laughs> has this really, really quite complex, sophistic- yeah, yeah, sophisticated groove, doesn't it? It's like, what is he playing? It's so heavy, you know, the actual, the actual part. Yet where it ends up is this ridiculous songo so simple ting ting yeah, ting yeah. boom boom it's just got it's just like ding, 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 ding. i think it's like that or something is it? it's yeah. just literally yeah. minims or crotchets and like the songo bass drum and then this backbeat but that isn't the groove at the beginning of the tune. So I was just, the example I was saying to these, these students is like, you know, a drum part cannot develop. It can almost underdevelop to become heavier toward in, in the outro of music, yeah. you know, and it's been brave enough to be able to go, my beat is so fat that I can play less in the bigger... In the bigger section. Because yeah, that song... In the biggest, as he opens out, the way that song opens out, the way JT sings those lines on the way out, and the harmony and the way it's, it's so like oh, it's, uh, it's, it's off the scale. It's it's weirdly. I remember, I remember where I was when somebody. Re- it was Steve Gilbert that recommended I get that album, um, and it, uh, it was a yeah, it was yeah, a loose yeah. change gig. Um, what was the name of that pub where loose mm. change used to play in Stockport? What was it called? The White Swan. The White Lion, the White, white Lion, was it the White Lion? The White Lion or the White Swan? Yeah, the White Lion. So the White Swan's in Leeds. Yeah, the White and, Lion. Um, yeah, Stockport. Wasn't yeah, it? and we were in there, and I'd just been to see James Taylor uh, at Tatton Park, big open air kind of fireworks in the. You know, it was a summer summer kind of time, and it was the t- it was just after Carlos had died, and I, obviously at that point I didn't know who Carlos was. I'd got a few early James Taylor albums with Russ yeah. Kunkel on, um, but. I'd been off the back of having those albums. I think one of them was uh, yeah. in the pocket. Is it in the pocket? Oh, man. Um, and, and and then I got a best of which had all the hits on, and I loved his voice. I loved the vibe. And I went with Guy Lightowler. We went to we went to see him at Tatton oh, Park. Guy, and yeah. Thousands of people there, and Russ was back on kit. Um, and uh, and and then I'd, I was telling Steve in the White Lion, and I said, "Oh, you know." great gig you know i'm really in getting into james taylor he said right he said he's got a new album out that's why he's over touring it's called hourglass he says go and check out track one line them up he says and listen to the 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 groove that carlos vegas plays at the top of the song he said it's 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 a perfect it's like you couldn't choose anything better than what he does for that song 
And that was that was my first experience of Carlos Vega because I'd not heard, heard of Carlos at that point. So this would have been... I mean, that album came out in, what, 97? 96. 96, 97. So, yeah. So yeah, I'm, at that time, I'm 21. I'm probably just about joined Andy Pryor's gig. Not really... You know, I was a big band. I was listening to loads of big band. I hadn't really got into into singer songwriter stuff. And you know that groove. I don't know if I can play it, but that groove for the top of line them up, which is um, you know, to me, sums it all up because. You know, he's Beautiful. not just playing sixteenths on the hi hat at one velocity. No. It's got, a, it's got a pattern. It's got, a, it's got a fucking loop. The hi hat's got its own yeah, loop. The, yeah. the rim click's got its yeah. loop, and the bass drum's got its own loop. And it's like, oh man, you know. And I remember getting that album, yeah, and I, yeah. I, I think I must have listened to it. I don't think I listened to anything else for such a long time. I, you know, I got to know everything on that album, and he's playing on that album. I mean, I thought, and then I went back and I got Never Die Young and New Moon Shine, which are the other two albums Carlos played on. And, um, yeah, yeah. Never know, Die Young is just incredible, isn't it? It's, oh, it's, it's off this guy. I was chat weirdly. Um, yeah. I was telling about this Zoom thing I did with uh, that I was on with Vinny uh, over the weekend. The, the week yeah. before that, Lee Scalar uh, was the guest, and I got to I got to ask him about working with Carlos. He's play. on the album, isn't he's he? He's on Never yeah, Die Young, you know. And I was saying, you know, that's yeah. one of my favourite James Taylor albums. I mean, every song's a winner. The playing on it's impeccable. And I just asked him what it was like playing with Carlos, and he said, "Well, I didn't have to do anything." He said, "I just wherever no. I put." Wherever I put it, he said. I said because I asked him. I talked talk to him about first day of May, you know, and how laid back that becomes in the songo section. And then he said, "Well, I said, did you discuss that at all? Was that the?" He said, "No, that's just where it just happened that way." And, and I think you know, it was it was um, Lee Scalar that recommended Carlos for the James Taylor gig. So you've got somebody there that, yeah, that yeah. just knew Carlos inside out. So when Carlos decides to lay back, um, Scalar's already there with him it's there's no discussion needs to be yeah. had it's that trust it's that con conviction and you know yeah. just beautiful beautiful yeah, people yeah. making beautiful music together what what's not to yeah, like you yeah. know it's amazing sklar he nails that definitive change in that um when carlos goes from that thing could the light be and then he goes dumb back to get to get oh. And then he hits the floor, Tom, and he goes boom. boom. He nails. He knows what and he's going to do. He knows it, what he's going to do. Yes, yeah, he he frames that change. It's Sklar that actually makes that. And I remember me and you like hilariously saying we both pulled the car over when we were listening to it. Well, yeah, I mean, I nearly the first crashed. time we heard it, you know. I nearly yeah. passed out. I nearly <laughs> passed out. Yeah, yeah, and it's just wonderful. Those those are the little things in music, you know, that, and about partnerships and teams, you know, mm. that somebody in the recording studio, they cut that track and they were like, somebody... It's like the Steve Gadd thing, you know, on, on Chucky's In Love and you, you, know, you talk about that kind of ethic in the studio of like, if you listen to Chucky's In Love, she does all that, the reframe, doesn't she? She's out, yeah. of out of time with the guitar. That's right. And it goes, and then you get, <laughs> and then, and he, but the thing is, he he had the nerve to play that, you know? Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, Steve, yeah, you're going to have to do that thing. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's, you know? it's cool. It's, uh, it's like, you know, Carlos, we're going to do that thing on the, yeah, that second, yeah, 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 it's yeah, absolutely no, fine. Yeah, it's absolutely you know? fine. Dip, dip your bread yeah. in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I've always, that's the thing I've always, 
massively admired, you know, because I just feel like everything I do is in the moment and it's gone and it's all bullshit. Whereas those things are definitively recorded on album for the world to hear and they never sound dated. In, in, you know? in 200 years' time, drummers will hear Chucky's In Love and go, oh, that's amazing. They'll hear yeah. it every, every every five, ten years. It's listened to and it will go on forever. Have it you will ever never be... Have you ever heard the, the track We Belong Together, Ricky? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Gad comes well, in... Well, he... he the triplets, yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh. It's like, imagine having the the balls to do that. It's like, here we go. Yeah, and he never plays a groove, does he, actually? It never actually... No, I mean, no, it no. is. It's ridiculous. Well, it's amazing, but, but it, he never plays, go, it never goes to full two and four on the snare. It's just... There's, there's no backbeat. No, no. You, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a. Who's the producer? Is it Peter Asher who talked about uh, that? No, it's. Uh, no, it's not Peter Asher. Is it Phil um, Ramon? Or is it Russ Teitelman? Uh, Russ. Um, oh, it's, either, it's on that Steve not, Gad documentary, isn't I, I it? I think it's Phil. I think it's Phil Ramon. I think it's Phil Ramon. And he, he said it's the greatest drum take at that up to that point he'd ever heard in his life. Um, and he said when he played that Phil. Um, he like he couldn't believe what he'd heard. You yeah, know? yeah. They all went berserk and, uh, in the uh, in this control room. It's like, what the hell is this? And I remember I because because I, I was like I was always a big Ricky Lee Jones fan, you know. And um, I'd listened to that track and thought, you know, when I'd heard it, I just thought. But then when I heard that story, kind of retrospectively, you know, told on that because it's on that Zildjian anniversary thing, isn't it? The Steve Gadd thing, yeah. where Vinny plays um, the uh, the Leprechaun or whatever it is, and that band, and uh, but there's an interview thing on the second DVD, isn't there? Lots of really that's the best bit of that DVD. That second DVD, with all the archive footage of Gadd playing in the big band with his army uniform and playing in that club in Rochester with that band with Tony Levin and all that lot, and he's just been ridiculous grooves and yeah. the conviction of his playing, you know, and then the little interviews about all that different stuff. Um, Anyway, that's amazing. Um, we might have to finish, you know, well, because you, I've got an iPad that's like got five percent battery left. Brilliant, and, it keeps and I'm freaking got, out on me. I've got to go and cook some tea for the family, so it's a good. It's yeah, a good uh, I think I have as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd, I'd promised to make the food, and I'd have no idea what time it is now. Yeah, it's half six now. Forever, half six. Oh, okay. That's that's pretty good. Oh, it's pretty brilliant, man. Well, so we didn't play as much as we thought we might do. Um, oh, don't, we don't played worry. Ball last the, the, time, didn't we? Yeah, but the talks the talks the most important thing. That's that's brilliant. Really good. Yeah, chat, yeah. It's been great. Yeah, really, really great too. Uh, it's bizarre. It's, what's hilarious as well is we set all this thing up on video, and then the last hour and a bit of your camera has just been you with no head. <laughs> it's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> So there you go. Uh, epic. And uh, yeah, really glad that we got to do that. And uh, some great stuff in there. Really interesting um, exchange of ideas and listening to his story and where he's kind of up to at the moment. And some of the people that we've both played with quite a lot. Um, so it's kind of nice to hear those com sort of comparative stories. Um, and yeah, we haven't had a chance to sort of speak uh, much in the last few years um, just because of, you know, living in different parts of the country and all that kind of stuff and um, Elliot's away a lot, he does a lot of touring and um, so yeah, it was great to just kind of catch up 
and uh, yeah, have a chat about some of those things and a few little stories. So that's kind of it for this week. Thanks for listening. Um, next week's podcast will be back to the normal format, the regular format. Um, not quite sure what the subject matter will be yet. It'll be a bit of a surprise. Got a few ideas floating around. Hope you enjoyed the last episode about uh, sort of hardware and e- evolution of hardware and all that stuff. And also, if you've not checked it out, um, there's a few other interviews on here with the uh, first one was Stuart McCallum, an old friend of mine. We're, we're trying to get a part two together of that. We've been chatting about that on and off for the last two or three weeks. Um, and then there's interview with a drummer called Rich Cass. Um, Scottish drummer, um, amazing polyrhythmic drummer who's really pushing the boundaries of the instrument. Uh, check that out. That's a few episodes ago. And, and a couple of episodes ago was a, a really nice interview with a, a good friend of mine, Sebastian de Crom, a great jazz drummer who, um, yeah, kind of works up in Leeds as well, where I work. And, um, yeah, if you listen to that, you'll hear all, all about Seb's story. So that's a really good one. So, yeah, anyway, um, thanks for listening. And um, we're back same time uh, next week, next Sunday. So bye for now. <laughs>